Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 347 of your Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Professor Mom, an interview with Professor Holly Ahern. My name is Richard Johannesson, and I had the good fortune and blessing of co-hosting this episode with our good friend, Tony Felice. Folks, we named this episode Professor Mom because Holly Ahern was a highly regarded researcher who pivoted over to the Lyme community and became one of the leading Lyme disease researchers after her daughter suffered from chronic Lyme disease. And Professor Hearn offered us a number of really powerful insights about the importance of using antibiotics very early on in your Lyme disease journey. She outlined for us a number of different interesting steps she's taking to participating as a professor and as a mom in the political events surrounding Lyme disease. And Professor Hearn is doing something really cool in addition to researching. She is mentoring tomorrow's leaders in the research community in Lyme disease. Folks, we're really excited to introduce to you Professor Holly Ahern. Professor Hearn, welcome to the Tick Boot Camp podcast. Thank you for having me. We are really excited to have you. And, you know, even more importantly than just having you, we also have one of our favorite friends, uh, guest co-hosting with me today. And uh, I know our community is going to be excited to know two things. One, that we have Tony Felice back, who had a huge number of downloads when we interviewed him on our podcast. And two, we don't have Matt Sabatello because Tony's going to be so much better than Matt that we're going to have a good replacement. So, Tony, why don't you say hi to the folks and uh, and uh, remind them of, 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 of what episode you were on last. Uh, hello, listeners. Um, thank you very much, uh, Rich, for in inviting me to co-host on the show. I was just on a few weeks ago talking about my Lyme, Lyme journey. I'm an entrepreneur and a business owner, and it almost uh, took my life. And uh, since then, I've been battling uh, chronic Lyme. And so we had protracted discussion about that. But one of the things I think I may have mentioned is that I, for a period of time, I sat on the board of an organization called Focus on Lyme. Uh, Focus on Lyme is uh, a, a nonprofit located in Arizona. Yes, ticks are in Arizona. Many people do have Lyme disease who live in Arizona. And uh, that's when I was first introduced to uh, Professor Ahern. And we met through Focus on Lyme uh, when she became the chief researcher for us and heading up all the scientific research being done to, uh, to, to, to either identify or to develop uh, a diagnostic tool that would be 100% accurate. And so uh, she has been our chief researcher and chief science advisor. She's one of the most well-respected Lyme researchers in the world. Um, she will talk to us in a few minutes about her background, but we are very, very fortunate to have her. She's super inspiring. And as I had said before the show began, uh, Professor how grateful I am and so many other people are knowing that you are a light at the end of many of our tunnels. Uh, so thank you so much for that. So this is really exciting that we have so many smart people on this podcast. So I'm going to do my best to stay out of the way and not mess this podcast up while you smart geeks uh, geek out online and all things that uh, you've worked on together. But before we do that, uh, Professor Hearn, please uh, give us a little little uh, information about your background. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And what ultimately brought you to the really cool place you are now where you're teaching and researching? Well, you know, I've been in New York most of my life and um, I grew up here in the, okay, so when I say New York, uh, because you are from New York and I'm from New York, but we might as well be on different planets because you are from downstate and I am from upstate New York. 
Um, so, you know, I grew up here, uh, went to college actually at UAlbany and uh, got my bachelor's degree in biology and medical technology and worked for a while in that field and then went back uh, to graduate school about five years later and uh, completed my graduate degree. I actually at that point was my graduate degree is in molecular biology and I worked with E. coli and somehow E. coli is a bacteria. And uh, that actually led me to a faculty position in microbiology, uh, which I, I'm currently a professor of microbiology at SUNY Adirondack, which is a little bit even further upstate. Um, and there I am, you know, I teach and I uh, supervise undergraduate research. And, you know, a lot of my undergraduate students um, probably because they can't help themselves. Uh, and I say that in a nice way because I I don't wanna say I force them into it, but I, I like to say that I lead them to research in Lyme disease. So I've had several of my undergraduate students go to graduate school to you know, further their careers in microbiology. And a couple of them have actually chosen to go further into the field of Lyme disease research. So that, you know, and that's a full circle for me. So I'm really happy that, uh, you know, those students were able to make that transition to it. Um, so that that's where I am currently. And my Lyme disease journey began about 12 years ago with my daughter, um, who was a, a nationally ranked athlete. She was in college. Um, and she suddenly and mysteriously after, you know, achieving all American status and uh, as a swimmer, suddenly became very ill. I mean, she she got sick. She was at college. She called and said, can I come home for the weekend? I just, you know, I need a weekend off. I don't feel well. And, you know, so of course came, got her, brought her home and she went to bed that night and really didn't get up again for about the next six months. So, and trying to figure out what had happened, you know, there this, this hell happened in February, March, you know, so Lyme disease was certainly not on anybody's radar, not the doctors that we took her to or anybody else. And, um, you know, it was a good three months of me being a mama bear, I guess is what it took to, you know, just keep asking more questions, getting more testing done. And honestly, it took a friend of mine who was in, you know, Tony's space with a chronic illness as a result of Lyme disease to say, you know, have you had her tested for Lyme disease? which, you know, it's like Lyme disease. As a microbiologist, you know, I, what I knew about Lyme disease is what I was teaching my students. And I was, I said, well, you know, there was, we didn't see a tick bite or any of these things. And she said, I know I didn't either. Maybe you should go find out if she has it. And we did. And I had to ask for that test. And when uh, the test came back positive for Lyme disease, you know, we were all happy and relieved and and just hoping that, oh, you know, now we have a diagnosis and Lyme disease. CDC says, you know, a short course of antibiotics, two weeks of antibiotics, she's going to be back on her feet, everything will be fine. Well, yeah, no, <laughs> that didn't happen. And that's, that's what happens with a lot of people. So, you know, it took, it was a journey, but, um, you know, she, she grew a lot as a result of that. Uh, i wouldn't wish it on anybody. And in fact, about two years in after she was starting to, you know, get her feet back under her. And I just said, I can't let this roll. I can't let more people suffer the way, you know, what, what my family went through, you know, we issues with navigating the insurance companies, issues with trying to get doctors to do the tests that, you know, were more accurate than others, which meant I had to find out all that myself. So it was really an eye opener about 
medicine in general, and then also just, um, you know, the, the issues with Lyme disease, but that's what brought me to advocacy. So as a, you know, a teacher, what I did first was, all right, I'm going to go out in the world and I'm just going to start giving seminars on Lyme disease. So that's where I got started. And, um, I also responded to a lot of things, especially in the spring around here. I'm sure that's true on Long Island as well. There's always articles about, oh, it's tick season and Lyme disease, this, and filled with inaccuracies. So I then I started writing um, op-ed articles in the newspaper, just responding to these things. And from there, I a lot of people came to me to learn, you know, just said, can you please get more involved? And um, and, and that's really how the advocacy part was born. Here in New York State, we st I started a um, organization called Lyme Action Network, which is an education advocacy organization. And then, um, you know, I met, which we can talk about later, but then I met Tammy Crawford in 2014 and nature took over from there. I mean, you know, that was a, a pivotal moment in, I think, both of our experiences. And we haven't looked back since. And so we've got big goals for what we're looking at here. So I'd like to walk back and unpack a couple of things with you. And let, let's first talk about uh, parenting line, right? So if if I were a child who was living in a tick endemic community, I don't think I could be safer than if I was being parented by someone like you, right? With your background and your education and your training, uh, I, I don't think I don't think I could want someone uh, more capable than you to help me to stay safe in a tick endemic community. Um, but it sounds like even despite your training and your education and your position in academia, that you didn't have enough information about Lyme disease to put your children in a position where they could keep themselves safe. That is absolutely correct. And it uh, was a, actually a shocking re revelation to me that I knew more about Lyme disease and the physicians that were um, trying to diagnose her. And I have to say, my daughter was bitten by a tick, but it was months before any symptom showed up. I mean, a long time. So there was a tick. There was a tick bite. We saw the tick bite. In fact, my daughter found it and was shrieking her head off about the fact that there was this tick on her, which was um, the first time ever. And, you know, we were, I removed the tick put in a baggie, brought her and my, you know, the tick to the doctor. And I said, all right, you know, I, cause I was worried about Lyme disease. It wasn't like we didn't know about it, but I did what I thought I needed to do. I took the my daughter and the tick to the doctor. He looked at the tick and shipped it off to the department of health. It came back later, um, which I thought they would test for the biological agents, but they did not. They just said, yes, it's a tick and it's a deer tick, you know, the, the kind that could transmit it. So, all right. Um, however, I was advised by my physician, and I don't hold this against him, but our family physician who was there at my daughter's birth said, all right, so you caught it early. We've got, you got the tick bite out. What you need to do next is wait and watch for a bullseye rash or flu-like symptoms. And if none of those occur, then probably she didn't get Lyme disease. And okay. so, so and at that, this is the one moment in my life where if I could go back and change one single thing in my life, it would be that moment when I walked away and I, cause I said, shouldn't she be given an antibiotic? I, we know we don't want to take the risk of, we don't want to have that risk. And he said, nope, nope, that's not what we recommend. We just, you know, wait and watch if she's going to get Lyme disease, she's going to get that bullseye rot, rash. So um, I walked out and going, looking back, I should have sat down. I should have staged a sit down protest and said, I'm not leaving here until you write that script, call the police, 
they're going to have to carry me out, you know, but um, I, we left and uh, watched every day for that bullseye rash and it, there was no rash ever appeared and she really didn't experience any symptoms until months later. And then it was not tick season, you know, it wasn't Lyme disease season. And so her illness was misdiagnosed as a viral thing, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, flu or something like that. And ironically, she, when the symptoms started, she also had swimmer's ear. So interestingly, she did get treated with a short course of antibiotics because of the swimmer's ear. And I, at that point, I think that might've been enough to, um, you know, kind of put the microbes away for a little while, put them back into dormant state because it really wasn't until, you know, again, another few years before she broke, you know, she broke, she came home from college that time. And that was really the the final point. Okay. So there's so many other things though I want to unpack with you. So let's, let's, you, you, you know, one of the things we often ask our guests to do is to go back in time and give the, you know, the, the now mom, uh, Professor Ahern advice. Um, what advice would you have wanted to give to that mother who had her child at the doctor's office after the tick bite? What What is the advice and what is it you'd want that mother to have known that perhaps could have stopped uh, the, the chronic illness from developing a couple of years later? Um, what I would, what I do tell parents, what I tell everybody is to advocate for if you have a tick bite and, you know, if you have a known tick bite, advocate for antibiotic treatment. And, you know, generally speaking, that isn't the standard of care. But if you say, you know, there's this concept of informed consent, right? So patients are supposed to be advised of all of their options. And if you invoke that and just say, um, you know, I understand that antibiotics come with side effects. I also understand that Lyme disease comes with long-term consequences. Weighing both of those, I would prefer the risks that are associated with antibiotics, which is, you know, upset stomach or, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm a microbiologist, so it's not, I'm not saying that I don't understand the risks of antibiotic therapy too, but given when you weigh those risks and when you're allowed to make that decision, um, I think, Tony, would you agree if you could take a antibiotic and be done as opposed to suffer? Yeah. Occam's razor. That's what I say. You know, ticks carry Lyme disease. Uh, There's a preponderance of Lyme disease in every state in in the United States. And so it's better, better safe than sorry. Yeah. So I've told people to raise hell and pull a, Shirley McLean from Terms of Endearment, uh, (laughs) (laughs) especially when it comes to children, right? I mean, this thing can devastate a child's life. It's been hard enough for me. I was infected when I was 45 years old. Uh, uh, I'm 58 now. So in the later stages of life, when things already start to, you know, fall apart, it's been it's been terrible. But you don't want to ruin a child's life. Right. Or, or in the adult's life, because in many cases, well, in almost every case where we've done an interview, at least, there is a long gap in time between a tick bite or multiple tick bites and ultimately a chronic illness. And I do want to explore that with you, but 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 there is one of the pieces I want to explore with you, which is on the antibiotic front, what type of antibiotic would you have wanted your child to have and for how long? Okay, so can I do a little bit of science on this? Please. <laughs> okay, so, um, you know, since 
that since the days of, you know, the, the recommended antibiotic was doc, is doxycycline, right? And that comes from a study that was done quite literally in the 1990s, um, where they tested three antibiotics. One was tetracycline, one was erythromycin, and the other one was a penicillin. I, I, think, I think it was penicillin. And they decided that doxy was the best. However, with all of those drugs, 50% of the people in that study ended up with, with long-term consequences, right? They, they all had symptoms that persisted, 50% of them. And of the three antibiotics, the reason why they chose doxycycline was because that one was the best. And, you know, the, unfortunately, the researchers at the time sort of disregarded the long-term symptoms as the aches and pains of daily living, or it's medically unexplained, we don't know what it is. So they said, um, you know, unless you had a, uh, like a heart condition, or if you had another bullseye rash, or if you had um, evidence with spirochetes in it, then there wasn't any need for, for um, you know, the, the, ever, those were considered cures, but they weren't cures. And if you go back and read that paper, it's just, it's, they even say in the paper that, this is, um, you know, we understand that that, that 50% of the participants still had symptoms, but we don't, we decided to disregard those because it can't possibly be Lyme disease <laughs> because we're treated with antibiotics. You know, it's so circular, it's, it's ridiculous. So that, uh, you know, the doxy issue, what I can tell you is subsequent research done at Johns Hopkins University and elsewhere have shown that doxycycline is not the best drug to use because it actually leads to the development of something that in microbiology is referred to as a persister state, which is a, a form, spirochetes in particular, but other bacteria do this too, where they just, you know, they're threatened. So what do they do? They, you know, change their form, they go dormant. So the antibiotic can't affect them. And those persister cells um, are exactly what you think a persister cell would do. They persist, they sit there and they, they can reactivate. And in fact, they do reactivate. So the studies that were done subsequently kind of indicated that for Lyme disease, um, drugs like cefoxidin or ceftin, um, you know, the cephalosporin antibiotics were far superior. However, there's also the issue of co-infections. And I have to say that when it comes to some of the other uh, microbes that are, that could have been transmitted at the same time, doxycycline is in effect, you know, is, is more effective for those kinds of infections. So it's kind of a, you know, the one size fits all approach doesn't work <laughs> because you, there's, it's yeah. so multifactorial. Uh, however, that is the approach, you know, that's what's going to happen. You're going to be told that, okay, here's uh, now they, they've downsized it from three weeks of doxycycline to 10 days for, um, you know, kids and then, you know, two weeks for adults. And then that's it. After that point, you know, I, you, your insurance company isn't going to pay for anything beyond that. So, okay. so, so, so the, again, go, I'm going to ask you to take your, your professor hat off for a minute, go back and put your mom's hat on. And now as, as, as the mom who, whose child is now at the doctor's office, and she's being treated for swimmer's ear, but she also has other things going on, which you think was a, was a predicate to the chronic illness she suffered a couple of years later. What would you want? What would you have wanted for that child at that time? Specifically, you know, you know I have my magic wand here. I'm now taking out the magic wand. I'm sending you back to that time when uh, when your child was at the doctor's office. What specifically would you want her to be prescribed so that she wouldn't? 
in your view, have had to have gone on the chronic uh, portion of our journey. Okay, so that would have been the tick bite. And what I would have wanted was any antibiotic. I mean, at that point, any. doxycycline. So again, I just can I put my hat back on for just okay. one Okay, you can, you switch them. Just let okay. us know. What you, really, really quick. Happen. I just want to say, you know, what the, the science has shown that early treatment, and by early, I'm talking within a week. Okay, so a week to maybe two weeks window tops. At, if you, if the bacteria are treated with antibiotics at that point, and again, doxycycline is the treatment of choice. So even with doxycycline, you have an 85 to 90% probability that you will recover from, you know, the, that the infection will be caught, that the bacteria will be killed by that antibiotic and that there will be no further consequences in your life. Okay. So, so, so the earlier, the better, right? Earlier innovation yes. is the key. So, right. so, so, so having the, all right. So now put the mom's hat back on as the mom, you wanted any, any antibiotic that would have been available to be given to your daughter at the moment of the tick bite and for how long a period of time would you have been on this? Because now you can put your science scientist hat back on. We know that the life cycle of, of, of the Lyme bacteria is 30 days, right? So do you believe that having a short course of antibiotic for, for a child or a short, a longer, but still a short course of antibiotic for an adult is going to be adequate when we know the life cycle of the, of the, of the bacteria as at least the what we call the Lyme bacteria. And I do want to talk to you about Lyme disease and the, the definition, but do you think that would be enough time when we know the life cycle is more than a month? Okay. So by life cycle, what you're talking about is the ability of the bacteria to make new, new bacterial cells. Okay. So that's, Correct. that's microbial. That's how they reproduce. Correct. So the point being, it may take them up to a month to do that, but if they're, if that process is disrupted at any point, then they, they're not able to do that. Right. So regardless of the fact that it takes them a month to right. go through the whole process and make new spirochetes, if you disrupt their ability to do that during that process, they're not going to be able to do that. So I don't, I don't necessarily agree that longer is better. Um, not for early treatment anyway, because it, okay. really we're talking about different diseases. Early disease is different than once they, they are what we call disseminated and then going on into late, they are different disease states. There's physiological proof of that now. So um, it, as long as we're on the topic of early antibiotic treatment, I would say 10 days to two weeks is going to be effective if we're talking about, you know, within a week of that tick bite. So, and that, you know, that's not an easy window because so many people wait for the bullseye rash to appear. That And that was, that would be my other advice to parents. Do not wait for that rash because this idea that it shows up in the majority of cases is baloney. Right. So, Tony, give give us your thoughts on antibiotics, and and you know, go back to go back to your first tick bite. Um, you know, what what would you have wanted? And is Dr. Hearn giving you some more information now that leads you to believe that perhaps you would have had a different opinion uh, about how much how much what type of treatment you would want, and and for how long a period of time? Uh, I have a, a, a before I do that, I have a, a science question. Um, Professor, uh, a few years ago at the scientific conference that Focus on Lyme held, there was a protracted discussion about uh, biofilms. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was suggested that, uh, that the bacteria, if, it, if the immune system does not deal with uh, Borrelia and um, antibiotics are not introduced within the first three weeks time period, that the, that the uh, that the bacteria could form a biofilm, a biofilm that 
uh, my takeaway, and I'm uh, and I probably screwed it up, but my takeaway was that the biofilm it produces is protein based and can and and can appear to be tissue elsewhere in the body. It, it's like a cloaking device. It pretends to be uh, epithelial tissue uh, for your uh, for your uh, heart, right, or your for for your intestines. That it has a, it's like a Klingon cloaking device that it's capable of creating, which means that at that point, antibiotics are in, ineffective. Right, but it does take them quite a while um, to actually build those and. You know, the idea, so a biofilm is something that many bacteria do, not just Lyme disease. And what I want to do is differentiate between the kind of biofilm that other bacteria produce versus the one that spirochetes do. Because what, what they do first, you know, and there's all sorts of terminology related to this, you know, microcolonies or microaggregates, because what, having watched them under the microscope, I mean, literally just sat there watching cells do their thing under the microscope for hours and hours and hours. So I know, ridiculous, right? It's like washing, waiting for the water to boil. But nonetheless, I did just to see what they would do. And I would watch them in this, this state of coming together, forming these aggregates with their little tails out on the outside. They would grow what I called heads and then they would drop their tails and the thing would grow from that point. So the outside, they're recruiting more cells to this structure. And then when it's all done, I mean, you know, the biofilm, I, I like to think of it as a city, uh, you know, it's kind of a fortress, right? You said a Klingon device, a cloaking uh -huh. device, but um, it really is, they, they build it, nutrients come in, waste goes out, they kick out other cells. And I, something that's interesting about the Borrelia biofilms is that they don't have the same stuff in them as the biofilms that other bacteria produce. So it's, it's like this, they, they produce um, chemicals that come from their cells. They, they drop their cell walls. They use parts of their cell wall to build these structures. Um, they don't have this one chemical called alginate. They don't have a gene for that. So they can't actually make the, the classic biofilm that Tony is kind of talking about with, uh, you know, the, it, it isn't necessarily a cloaking device. It's just a fortress that once it's established, it's next to impossible to actually get rid of them. And then the question is, you know, in that fortress, what are they doing? Are they able to reactivate? Is it the presence of the fortress that causes inflammation? And, you know, there's, we got evidence on all sides here. So it's really hard to say exactly what it is that triggers all that, but ultimately what starts it is the spirochete, is the so, presence of the bacteria. So Dr. Let, let's, let's pause there because I do want to talk a, a little bit more about biofilms, but there is this, process or the steps we can take before the biofilm forms right so if we if if we're going to talk about that piece of it so you you believe that had you had the opportunity you would have wanted your daughter to be to be prescribed some form of antibiotics yep. um which makes sense um that that would be a great tool to try to aid your daughter's system with breaking down or reducing the microbe load so it would be less likely that she would get chronically ill later on. Um, now, my next question to you is, as someone who lives in a tick endemic community, um, and, and I've been bitten by a tick at least five times over the course of the last three years. Uh, you know, again, we have ticks all over the place. We have dogs that come in. I've been bitten five times in the last three years. Um, what is your feeling about repetitive use of antibiotics 
for people who are consistently being bitten and what impact do you think that might have on creating um, antibiotic uh, resistant bacteria if we're going to be taking uh, taking either doxycycline or some other form of antibiotic every time we get bitten by a tick. Right. And that that's the problem, right? So again, you got to consider the risk versus the reward. Um, so, you know, my daughter was bit just the once, and then we learned from that point on that we check continuously. And, you know, it is true that the longer the tick is attached, the, the higher the likelihood that the bacteria are um, spread, or, you know, are transmitted. But I, I will say that her tick was not on her for, it was 12 hours tops. I mean, I, I know when we found it, and I know that when she went to bed the night before that, it was not there. Um, and she, we had been at a horse show that day. So I know that sometime during that night, the thing attached to her, and we found it in the morning. So it may be 12 hours. So, but I would say, you know, if you catch those ticks early and you pull them off, the risk goes down significantly. So that would be, um, you know, thing number one to consider for the antibiotics. But, you know, the problem is not everybody sees the tick. Um, most, people not, don't. most people don't know when the thing attached because they're so good at what they do. They, you don't even feel them, you know, doing their drilling or anything. And that, so you don't know how long it's been. And that part would be that that's the part where it would sort of be like, well, you know, if you don't know if it's less than 12 hours or 24 hours, maybe we should do it at that point, you know? So it's a, it's a very tricky question um, because I totally agree with you. We do not want to overuse antibiotics. We have done that already. Um, and and we're, we, the consequences of that are, you know, we're, we're dealing with that now. And, you know, we certainly don't need to do any more of that. But on the other hand, again, um, you know, Lyme disease sucks. <laughs> it does suck. And, 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 and that's why I'm, I'm asking you the question because I, you know, I, I can say just on my personal journey, um, when I was bitten the first, well, I've been bitten many times in my life. I haven't grown up on Long Island. I was bitten by ticks many, many, many times. Uh, and, and thank God my immune system has been healthy and it's been able to manage the microbes that have been spit into me. But when I went to when I went to the doctor for the tick bite that I had just before we started this podcast, or about six months before we started the podcast, he prescribed me five days of um, of doxycycline, uh, which I which I then took, and then shortly after that, I was bitten by a tick another time, and I decided in that case that I was not going to take the antibiotics again. I was concerned about the repetitive use of the antibiotics, and I used another I used another strategy. Um, uh, you know, an herbal strategy through through Rawls MD, and I think that was very effective. Quite frankly, the antimicrobial elements of that I think were very effective. So I think there are alternatives, and I just feel much more at peace with with using those. And and again, just to share with our listeners because they they probably know this, I have actually been on that protocol um, from that point forward. I've been taking I've been taking the the the, the restore kit. Uh, at least 50% of resource kit from that point forward, because I live in a tick and community. I'm getting bitten all the time. And quite frankly, another thing I, I'd like to challenge you on, Dr. Hearn, is whether or not the tick bite that your daughter received that time was necessarily the tick bite that caused her to have the uh, microbe overload that resulted in her becoming chronically ill, because I think we get bitten all the time. And at least on this podcast, we've, we've calculated that about 80% of the people who have been uh, who have tested positive on the traditional two-tier test, and we know that is very narrow, but 80% of those people who have tested positive do not recall ever being bitten by a tick. And I think that's because, as you would argue, they're such stealthy little bugs, 
that you know they 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 are grabbing us, they are biting us, they are sucking our blood, they are staying on for a long time, and they're leaving us, and we don't know it. And I think it happens time and time and time and time again. And what happens in in cases, at least in our experience, where where we have a particular tick bite that is in close proximity to the time we become chronically ill, we point to that and say, oh, that's the tick bite. So, do you think it's possible your daughter was bitten many times, and then and then uh, what what happened in the one instance where you did find the tick biting her? You guys are connecting that, or you folks are connecting that tick bite to the chronic illness. When in fact, it just may have been many tick bites and many microbes being spit into her over the course of a long period of time, and then perhaps there was an immune disrupting event just before she had become chronically ill, and 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 her system got over overloaded. Um, with with all of the microbes that her body had previously been able to manage. Yeah, that, that is absolutely true. I mean, do I know that for sure? No, there's no way to know that for sure. I mean, there would be no way, even if I if she had been tested for Lyme disease at the point of the tick bite, it wouldn't have been positive anyway. So um, I totally agree that 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 was that that it could have been something else. But what here's you know what I believe. This is I'm pretty confident in saying that what I believe happened is that she was given Lyme disease by that tick way back in the day. Um, and I will tell you that secondary to what well, I don't even know if that was secondary. Um, she also has Bartonella. Um, and but we didn't know that for, you know, even after she was diagnosed with Lyme disease, the, the Lyme disease doctor that we took her to didn't mention anything, you know, tested for the other co-infections, but Bartonella wasn't even really on the radar. And I had to ask for that test as well. Once I started doing a deep dive into that particular bug and, you know, honestly, that bug is as it, they're pretty, <laughs> they're both very remarkable. I, I have um, incredible re respect for them, even though I hate them, you know, it's just like, you ruin my daughter's life, but I, but it's like, I love you. You're so amazing. <laughs> You know, from a microbial perspective. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know any if any of that was true, but I believe that the Lyme took out her immune system. I believe that, and I, I believe this because that's what the science shows, that they are immune system disruptors. Um, and they the mechanisms that they use are not that dissimilar from other um, agents that we know take out the immune system. And that made her susceptible to secondary infections that like Bartonella was one of them. Epstein-Barr is another one that a lot of people have in the background um, that, you know, that leads to fatiguing symptoms. I mean, at this point, they have pretty much decided that Epstein-Barr is the the culprit behind MS, um, you know, multiple sclerosis too. So I you know, what we need to do is stop, we need to move away from this model of one germ, one disease, and just say that this is a very complicated thing. And we need to look at all of these different aspects. And oh, you, we will be hopefully Lord, I'm so excited. You yeah. just brought me to my next question. And I, and, and I, I really want to uh, ask both you and Tony. Uh, and I'm gonna ask, ask Tony first. Tony, can you please define Lyme disease for me? What is Lyme disease? Um, a list of explanatives that I cannot say on the <laughs> air. <laughs> I can truly understand how, because, you know, while I'm not a research scientist, uh, I, I did graduate from the College of Engineering and all of my science concentration was on the human body in particular. And, um, and so I think that that actually helped me to some degree be able to navigate the symptoms I had in the beginning. I, I would- oh, But you were healthy I, too, right? I mean, you, you were uber fit and you were able to manage 
all of these bugs for a long time. And you, you've been, I mean, you're, you're even uber fit now, right? Despite being sick for a long time. So because you were healthy, you were able to manage it. I was healthy, but uh, I was on my deathbed many times. And uh, I was on my deathbed almost most recently um, when I got COVID. Um, in addition to having chronic Lyme, I did not think I would survive that. Um, and so I'm coming off of a, of a major relapse when my mom passed away four months ago. And the trauma of that was, uh, you know, caused me to relapse again. I'm, I'm going for an IV treatment tomorrow uh, with my uh, the standard protocol that I do, which is the, the ongoing IV treatments with oral antibiotics uh, when, there is a, when there's a flare. But you asked me a question and, and how would I define Lyme disease? Lyme disease is a, um, it, it is a disease caused by a, uh, a tick bite. Um, it could be caused by flea or mosquito, but we don't know for sure. But it is either one or a collection of nasty diseases, bacterial, that enter your system and devastate your immune system and other parts of your body. It manifests differently in different people. Uh, there are neurological forms, there's cardiovascular forms, there are, there are forms that uh, called horrible thing called cardionephritis where your heart dies in your body. So um, the short answer to that is that it's a nasty bug and it, and it also is very difficult to, uh, to destroy because there are implications to the destruction of this bacteria. It, it uh, produces, I think, a neurotoxin upon death, which can, which can cause what's called a Herxheimer reaction. I'm sure plenty of your, the people on, on, on your show have talked about that before. You've sure. you got to be very careful when you go about killing things. And some of these bugs, and, and the professor can correct any of my bad science, because I am not a scientist. Is You're that doing some, fine, Tony. You're doing fine. Media, Babesia, for example, lives within the nucleus of a red blood cell. You can't go about going red blood, killing red blood cells, right? And expect to survive it. So this is a, um, this is a very um, interesting disease. Um, and it's a very fascinating topic when you consider how many uh, different kinds of responses there are for, for patients responding to Lyme. Uh, which makes it even more difficult because if you look at the Lyme research, as the professor will tell you, that it's all it's in a vacuum. They look at Borrelia, but they don't look at Borrelia and Babesia, Borrelia and Bartonella in combinations and the impact that it has physiologically on patients. So, Tony, what's your reaction when folks say that uh, Borrelia burgdorferi and and, uh, and Lyme disease are the same? Uh, what do I say when people? Yeah, because look, I, I'll I'll share with you. I I had uh, I had another um, scientist on this on this podcast, and we were we were asking the question about what is Lyme disease, right? Because one of the positions, one of the things we've learned through through the last couple of years that we've been doing this podcast and 350 people we've interviewed is that Lyme disease is really a disease without a definition. We have as many definitions as we have people that come onto this podcast, right? And how are we going to hit the target if we don't have a definition for the target, right? And I had one I had one. Uh, uh, doctor say to me, Richard, and she called me Richard, Richard, Lyme disease is an infection caused by Borrelia burgdorferi. I was like, all right, 
if you say so, professor, but I, I, I have a very different definition. And, 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 you know, and so one of the reasons why we, you know, we find it uh, incumbent upon us to ask the question, what is Lyme's disease of everyone that comes to this podcast? Is because we have many definitions that we have as, as we have people, right? So your definition, Tony, went on for a long, long time, right? Because there's so many different elements to this. Uh, but I can tell you that if you had given that definition to the, the, the doctor we had interviewed, she would have wagged her finger at you and said, Anthony, that is not what Lyme disease is, because that's what she said to me. And I would have challenged her to name the 33 species of Lyme. All right. Well, so, so <laughs> you're going to render an opinion. <laughs> so you better know what you're talking about. Professor, is that correct? How many known species are there of Lyme? And, and even a Japanese strain is showing up in Flagstaff, Arizona, caused an outbreak in 2009 or six. I don't remember. So before we get there, though, Terry, let's, 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 let's ask the professor to define Lyme disease. Wow. <laughs> Um, all right. So there are many, many ways to define it. There is the public health definition. There is the medical um, standard of care definition. There is the patient's approach. There is the microbiological definition. So um, which would you like me to provide? <laughs> well, I mean, it scares me that there are so many different definitions, right? Yes. I, mean, I have, I, I have, I have one of the leading, um, you know, professors uh, studying Lyme disease telling me, that within the community of people who are studying Lyme disease, there are at least five different um, definitions of Lyme disease. Well, you know, within the research world, I would say that the definition is an infection um, that is caused by Borrelia, and it's not necessarily Borrelia burgdorferi, but Borrelia burgdorferi, uh, this is so complicated because they've actually changed the name of Borrelia. Did you guys know that? Do you know that? I did. No. So Borrelia is now Borreliella. The, the oh, kind that causes Lyme disease is Borreliella. Okay. And then there are the strains that come from Europe. Um, and then there are the relapsing fever Borrelia. So what kills me, this is what gets me every time that if you have relapsing fever Borrelia, like, you know, the one Tony was just talking about Borrelia myomatoi, right? That's the one. Um, so that is a relapsing fever Borrelia. So there will be people who will tell you, well, that's not Lyme disease. That's relapsing fever. And I will say, all right, so let me get this straight. Um, it's this basically transmitted by the same kinds of ticks. It has the same course without the bullseye rash, right? So there's no rash associated with this illness. It is a relapsing fever, which means it, you know, it, it, it stays in the bloodstream for a while and actually causes recurring bouts of fevers and illness. And it's very difficult to eradicate. And then when you ask somebody, well, what really then, how, why is this different than Lyme disease? It's like, well, because it's not Lyme disease. <laughs> I was like, but it's caused by the same genus of bacteria that are spirochetes. They, and they're transmitted by the same ticks, which by the way, that relapsing fever group isn't supposed to be transmitted by hard body ticks. It's only the soft body ticks. Although they just found another one in Florida, by the way, that is also transmitted by hard body ticks. So, um, it, you know, if you ask a doctor that, they will say it is an infection caused by Borrelia burgdorferi, period, right? Um, but it is way beyond that. It is an infection caused by multiple species of Borrelia here and in Europe. And then there's an associated disease called relapsing fever, tick-borne relapsing fever, which is so it, it's basically the same disease, but we can't call it the same disease because it's not the same 
you know, it, it's <laughs> bizarre. They just keep adding more and more rules to try to explain this disease when we don't need explanations. We need diagnostic tools and we need treatments for whatever the heck it is. Let's stop arguing over whether we should change its name. Let's actually figure this out and help people. But, but Professor, how can we hit the target if the target keeps moving, right? I mean, and so let's go back to, I'm going to ask you to put your mom hat back on, right? When your daughter got bitten by the tick, right? You said you wanted you wanted to use an antibiotic, right? And you knew that if you use antibiotics sooner rather than later, then the likelihood is that the, that the uh, bacteria would die before it would reproduce and before it would become a systemic disease, right? Yeah. But we, we were debating a little about which antibiotic you would want, and we you still haven't really given us an answer whether or not doxy would be better or you know some other some other um some other bacteria i mean some other antibiotic would be better and and of course it begs the question well if it's a broad spectrum disease or is it better to use a broad, broad spectrum antibiotic or if it's a more narrowly defined uh bacteria is it better to use a different kind of bacteria right so i i now have your mom's hat on you're back in the day you know again i'll bring out the magic wand again you're now back to the day when when uh, your daughter had the thick bite and you went to the doctor's office and you wanted to you wanted to make sure that she didn't become chronically ill, what antibiotic are you going to use and why are you going to use that when we when we when we have different definitions of this disease? Because I'm going to tell you what our definition is here at Tick Boot Camp. Our definition is it's a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease. That's what Lyme disease is in our view. It isn't one bacteria, it's many bacteria. It's not one party system, it's many systems. And it is a chronic disease, not an acute illness, right? And I think if we if we all come together around that definition, then we can start moving towards hitting that target. But if we continue to have all of these different, if we if we continue to have all of these different definitions, we're never gonna get to the point where we can come up with tests and we're never gonna get to the point where we can come up with a treatment that's going to work. Give we need to treat them as separate diseases. There are uh, so, in other words, what you just said. You know, going back with my mom, I'm wearing my my mom hat is on at this moment. Sure. At that point, Lyme disease was explained to me. You know, my my fear that it could be Lyme disease because you know we went through all that was with the tick. It was the doctor said, okay, that's what it is. It's a disease. It's an infection that's transmitted by ticks. It's caused by Borrelia burgdorferi. And um, if she gets symptoms, then this is the best antibiotic for that. Okay, so it, when you go when, at that point, and we're talking about 2009 here, all right, so this has been a while. Um, when you go look up stuff, where do I go look for up on information? I didn't go to the internet. I went to the CDC. Right. I went to the NIH. Right. I went to the scientific literature. Right. And guess what? This is what I was finding. So it's like, okay, we'll wait and watch for this rash and if it doesn't happen it isn't Lyme disease so that that's the medical definition and the medical definition is the acute form the em rash that's what that's it but that is a thing that does happen okay. to people. now let's talk about the medical definition because i want to get your reaction to this as, as well tony right because the reason that was the medical definition is because there were many other people who were either making observations in the field as clinicians or there were there were uh, people who were doing research um, that were not able to gain access to the medical journals 
to present a definition of Lyme disease other than the one that you found when you were researching through the CDC, the NIH, and, and the scholarly journals, right? So we had, we had many, many clinical observations that were beginning in the 70s here on Long Island with some brilliant researchers, and they couldn't get access to the medical journals. So now what happens when mom, again, I wanted you to be my mom if I'm living in a tick endemic community. I want somebody who has the ability to get that information so that I can be treated properly. But guess what? Despite being a professor, despite being this genius that you are, despite being the person who has all this information, you go to all the sources that you would go to as a scholar. And guess what? They were wrong. And they were wrong despite there being other sources available because the people who had their hands on, on, on the gates that allowed this allowed these 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 uh, research um, papers to be published weren't allowing the gatekeepers weren't allowing the alternative definitions which are now born out to be true forty years later fifty years later that should have been available to somebody like you so at least you would have had the alternative uh, options as a parent to decide how you were going to evaluate your daughter's illness that is correct that is absolutely correct. So, and I, I, you know, I, to this moment, I'm still um, pretty outraged about that, you know, because it wasn't like the science wasn't there because throughout, you know, from 1977 until, you know, 1995, when you read the scientific literature, the historical scientific literature, and you look at, it was like they had it. It was a long-term chronic illness. There was neurological Lyme. There was, you know, some people didn't recover. Antibiotics didn't treat anybody. It was congenitally transmitted. Um, all of those things were there. And then in 1996, it ended pretty much. And it started with, um, you know, this, this uh, consensus, alleged consensus meeting where they try to decide what, um, you know, what would be the best diagnostic criteria for surveillance purposes. And ultimately that ended up being cemented as how they diagnosed the disease. And then from there, which, you know, I, and I don't know if you even want to talk about that, but from there we move on to the, um, you know, the issues with the vaccine, the first vaccine. And, you know, all of, all of that actually played into cementing in place this idea that, no, 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 you know, we have to have a way to define Lyme disease. So we're going to define it as a bullseye rash and or positive serological test results, even though now, I mean, and they knew it then. Um, but now, I mean, the evidence is so strong that those are like the two worst things you could possibly use for diagnostic criteria. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, I, so, but, but, but Tony, what, what, what happened here was, of course, Lyme disease was, Lyme disease was named Lyme disease as a result of two mothers jumping up and down about their children getting sick in Lyme in old Lyme, Connecticut, right? One of whom was a former, um, a World Health Organization um, uh, employee, right? So they're jumping up and down. They're 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 really upset that they see all of these children in their community suffering with the same symptoms and no definition, right? So what happens? The Connecticut Department of Health goes to Yale University and Ivy League College, and they find they they assign one of the young um, you know rheumatologists to do some research to determine why all of these children are suffering from these from these rheumatological symptoms, right? And they name this Lyme disease. They don't know why, they don't know why they all have it. They do see some, have some, some uh, ideas about why this cluster is developing, but they ultimately name it Lyme disease, right, Tony? And then what happens is that scientist, that researcher, the guy who named it Lyme disease, then becomes the gatekeeper on all of the, all of the boards of the, of the scholarly journals 
that are going to be deciding whether or not they're going to publish um, alternative definitions and alternative findings on this. One of those, one of those uh, people who's doing research is Dr. Alan McDonald, who we've interviewed on this podcast several times. And when he presents a paper that suggests that it's polymicrobial, when he presents another paper that definitively demonstrates that, uh, that Lyme disease could be uh, congenitally um, transmitted, he calls it the dead baby studies. In the early 1980s, He's, he's accused of, of, of fraud. He's accused of, of, of doctoring the data. And his papers never get published, despite the, them being presented um, at the conference, because this same doctor who defined Lyme disease as a single bacteria, who named the disease, uh, wouldn't allow it to be published. So now we have Dr. Hearn, whose daughter gets sick, sick the way you did, Tony, getting her life ruined the way your life was being ruined. And the alternative information was available in the 1980s. But, it, but the gatekeepers wouldn't let it be released. What's your reaction to that, Tony? My reaction? <laughs> yeah. Well, in 1989, I was diagnosed after a uh, spinal, two spinal taps with lowland swamp fever caused by an undefined biological cause agent. <laughs> that was my diagnosis in 1989, Professor. So aliens, in other words. Right. Yeah. So... I, I, there's, there's an entire body of evidence to suggest that something other than honest research is going on um, outside of the, the research that's being done by individuals like uh, the professor that's on with us today. I don't know that. I don't know it. And honestly, I want I want to get well, and I want I'm more interested in knowing what the what the what the current research is, and how close are we to a 100 uh, percent accurate diagnostic tool that will also help those suffering from chronic Lyme? Because I continue to test positive for the antibodies, um, and they light up, and yet my doctor persists in telling me that uh, that that. Um, that's not the root cause of any of my issues, right? So I, the only response I have to what you just said is outrage and I and outrage is not good for my health. So I'm gonna pass this All right. uh, the answer well, <laughs> along to the professor. I, I appreciate it. So let's, but let's take the next, let's take the next step, uh, professor. And the next step is um, what we, we have this, this relationship in the medical community be, between those of you who are researchers and those people who have uh, who have the right to treat us clinically, right? And the way the relationship is supposed to work is you folks do the research with after after you have your findings, um, the the findings if they are replicated by others in your community and become generally accepted among the community of people who are doing the researchers, those those research findings then become the protocols that the clinicians are supposed to be following. And when the clinicians follow those, those protocols, they're safe, except they're only supposed to be stepping outside of those protocols when they, through their clinical experience and training, uh, are treating an outlier. And when they're treating an outlier, they can step outside of the protocols that have been, been generally accepted by people in your community, the research community. But other than those rare instances where somebody is outside of the bell-shaped curve that you're, you're studying and they are, they're an outlier, they have to be treated within the confines of the generally accepted medical practices that are, that are defined by folks like you. But here's the problem, right? The clinicians are seeing something on the ground that they know 
is not consistent with the research findings that are available to you because the people who are at the gate are not allowing the alternative research to be made available. So what is a clinician to do? The clinician is, is knows that that the that the research is not accurate. They know that your daughter is sick and there's something they can do about it. But they also know that they treat your daughter outside of those generally accepted medical practices that have been generated by people like you and the gatekeepers who are allowing those things to be published. What do they do? What's a clinician to do? Well, my hope is that we can put all of this behind us shortly because there will be a way to determine whether or not somebody actually does have Lyme disease or not. I mean, and that, what I'm talking about, so I, I had a, I had a very interesting conversation with a um, pediatric um, infectious disease doc, um, and that person provided the, you know, basically said, look, we need tools. You know, we understand this is a problem, but we don't have anything to in our arsenals that allow us to help. We don't have an accurate diagnostic test. How are we supposed to make a diagnosis? Yes or no? You know, you have Lyme disease or you don't. We don't, you know, the whether or not antibiotics are effective at various stages that, you know, we don't really have good guidance on that yet. And then there's no therapeutic. So for the patient, the chronic patient, at this moment, you know, antibiotics keep can can help. I mean, it certainly keeps some people functional, but it's not a treatment. You know, it doesn't um, it doesn't get rid of the spirochete, so the symptoms will come back and come back. But the point being, it improves people's health for you know their um, overall well being for a while. Shouldn't that be? Good. I mean, you know that this is why they give drugs to uh, immune suppressing drugs to people with disease, autoimmune diseases, right? To to help them have a quality of life. So why shouldn't we be using antibiotics to help people imp have an improved quality of life? I mean, it's not going to cure them. Neither are the steroids or the um, immunotherapies that they're giving to autoimmune disease. It's not going to cure them, but it can help them stay better. But the you know the infectious disease doc was saying we don't you know we don't know what the appropriate treatments are. We need treatments for the chronic patients, whether or not it's antibiotics probably isn't, you know, probably there are other things. We should look for immunotherapies. We should look for monoclonal antibodies that could be treatment for this disease. And, uh, you know, just as in a preview, uh, you know, we're, we're moving into that realm. Once we have the diagnostic, we're moving into therapeutics because that's the, those are the two things that really need to be addressed in this but disease. See, the, the, the problem is that you folks in the in the research community are deliberate and slow. And I want you to be deliberate and slow, but you are really slow. We're 20 we, years ahead of them, Rich. All right, well, but you, you, you may be, but unfortunately being 20 years ahead of, of your, your fellow researchers um, is not putting us in a position where that's becoming the standard of care. And because it's not becoming the standard of care, we have people like Tony who are really sick. Yes. And, and people like Tony who are really sick are going to their doctors and their doctors are afraid to treat them despite having the ability to clinically diagnose him and treat him because what happens is, and we're going to get into insurance companies and, and pharmaceutical companies in a moment. You've already teased that, Professor. So we're, we're going to get there in a minute. But but what 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 we have, of course, is we have doctors who have adequate training to clinically diagnose and treat their patients 
But if they do clinically and, 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 and um, diagnose and treat their patients outside of the generally accepted medical practices that are, that are, that are defined in essentially statute by the, by, the, uh, by the medical journals, they're in a position where they could lose their license, right? Yeah, and in fact, at New York State, that it has happened. Um, you know, in this particular state is, you know, back in the '90s when you know the first set of physicians were seeing all these cases and they were treating with antibiotics. Um, you know, I, having talked to many of these doctors, they they were um, reported to the Office of Professional Medical Conduct, which is part of New York State, um, and then which once that is re- once you are reported the office has to go, you know, basically do a review of everything. And that costs, uh, you know, the, the physicians that this happened to, I know had to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to defend their medical license for not doing anything wrong other than trying to help their patients. And, you know, several, several physicians um, that I know had to, have had to go through this multiple times, not just once. And so I was part of a group back in the uh, 2014, and actually this bill was signed into law in 2015, which protected doctors from punitive review by the Office of Professional Medical Conduct. That law is still in the books today. And I, you know, I have to in, tell people they can invoke that because, um, you know, the idea that anybody, a patient who was displeased with the way you, they were treated, insurance companies that didn't want to pay a bill for IV antibiotics could report these physicians to the Office of Professional Medical Conduct, which then were required to do the review. But in the meantime, you know, the physician would have to hire a lawyer, would have to spend, ten, I'm, I'm not thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars to defend their medical license. And, you know, a lot of them are not able to do that or want, willing to do that. And so the, the alternative is, uh, fine, I'm not going to see Lyme disease patients. And that's why we have an issue with access to care. Patients are not, there's not that many physicians that will, you know, work with chronic Lyme disease patients. Um, you know, they're willing to see early Lyme cases because antibiotics are really not as controversial at that stage. It's just in the later stages. Um, but the point is, you know, those physicians are few and far between, even here in New York State. And, I, you know, we are a highly endemic state and perhaps the leader. <laughs> Yay. You know, we're number one. <laughs> um, but we, you know, so there should be more specialty physicians that are able to deal with patients that have this chronic form of the illness. And well, so- you know, they, they're aware, but they just they again feel they don't have the tools. They don't have the diagnostic tool. They don't have any um, treatments that they feel comfortable prescribing. So, but what physicians should know is that in New York state, um, that law exists, that law is on the books and that they they are protected from, uh, you know, Office of Professional Medical Conduct review for, to some extent, at least. Well, I mean, it's not like they can't, they can get away with anything, um, you know, but they are just because they see Lyme disease patients is not a good enough reason to, well, but you know the, the problem is, Dr. Hearn, is is that um, you know we one of one of the one of the doctors we interviewed on this podcast is uh, Dr. Joseph Buroscano, yes, who is, who is treating who is treating Lyme disease patients in the late seventies and the early eighties. Yeah, he was one of the first. Mm-hmm. He wrote this brilliant guide on how to treat patients with with um, chronic uh, Lyme disease in the early nineteen eighties. Yeah, but. He stopped treating patients with Lyme disease. And why? 
because because the medical board came in, investigated him, and 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 forced him to be supervised by another doctor for two years. Even though, if you look at the guy today, and we've now looked at it in 2023, it's right on. If we use his standard of care that he defined the 1980s, I can tell you right now, many, if not most of the people who are sick from Lyme disease wouldn't be sick today. But what happened? They 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 sued him. He had to spend a million dollars in the 1980s. I'm not talking about thousands, I don't think tens of thousands, million dollars in the early 1980s in order to be able to keep his license. And although he kept his license, he had to be supervised by another doctor and he stopped treating, he stopped treating uh, Lyme yeah. patients. Now, what did that do to Long Island where I am, which is the probably the most tick endemic portion of New York State, right? We have no Lyme literate doctors. We have no Lyme socials. We have zero. I recently had a friend who was bitten by a tick and he said to me, can you help me find a Lyme literate doctor to treat me so that I don't get sick? And I went on, you know, I did research to find a Lyme literate doctor in Long Island and we couldn't find one, not yeah. one. So that, so what's happened is, you know, we have these research standards, which are wonderful. We should have uh, generally accepted medical practices that are, uh, that are, that are, based on research that has been replicated and accepted by the people in the community who are doing the research that you're doing, Dr. Hearn, right? We should be bringing those standards down so that clinicians have a guide that they can follow in order to be able to treat people. But then we get in, we get into a place where we have a politicized system with gatekeepers who are stopping research from being published. And we have clinicians on the ground who want to treat patients. But when they do treat patients, they find themselves in a position like Dr. Buroscano, despite being a brilliant guy who was educated at one of the top medical schools in the country and, has, and, and was doing great work, um, he, was, he was punished and ultimately run out of town, literally run out of town, right? So now, now we have a lot of researchers um, who, are, who, again, put your research hat back on, who are very critical of clinicians who are putting people on the antibiotic loop, or at least that's what we call it here at the boot camp, where you're on antibiotics, yeah, you know, and then they come off and then you're on and then you come off and you're on and you come off and you come on and you come off. And you come off. So we call that the antibiotic loop, right? But what alternative do we have when we don't have diagnostic tools and we don't have treatment tools and we don't have immunotherapy? Right. What's the alternative for these people? There is no alternative. And that is what really is the, you know, there is no, so it's basically either you have to follow these rules or too bad for you, you're screwed. Right. And that is the part that, um, you know, I mean, that's why we're here, right? It's not about the lucky winners of the bullseye rash and the people who get treated early. It, it is about the chronic patients who have been, you know, basically left on the doorstep. They, there's just nothing to do other than try to figure it out yourself. And then if you try to figure it out yourself, you're called all kinds of names. You know, it's like, oh, well, um, you know that's that's not right and it's witchcraft and it's this and it's that it's like yeah no I mean there's good science behind a lot of these things and um there I, I I have to say that at this stage you know the infectious disease society of America standard of care is the dominating one just because of the way medicine has been compartmentalized and infectious disease specialists are thought to be able to know everything there is about infectious diseases when you know, in fact, when you look at what they do, it's like, all right, well, here's the disease on this list, and that's the antibiotic you're supposed to prescribe. So that's what we're going to be treating. But, you know, that that all hinges on having an accurate diagnosis. So if you are the, you know, you, you are the four out of five bands on the IgG Western blot, you know, you are not going to the infectious disease doc is going to say, no, that's not Lyme disease. We're not treating it with antibiotics. Let's start steroids or something along those lines. 
So the International um, Lyme and Associated Diseases Society has a standard of care. They published a paper. <clears throat> it was peer reviewed. It was actually um, uh, when they had this, uh, the clearinghouse, the guidelines clearinghouse, it was part of the guidelines clearinghouse. And, you know, it, it, when I read things about those guidelines, about how it's, you know, that it's not, they're not science-based, I said, and I've said this out loud on many occasions. Yes, they are. Go read the references, look at the paper. It's more patient focused because they, you know, they actually include patient perspectives in, in um, all of that. And there's nothing, there's no quackery involved in it. You know, they're basically saying, treat your patient and see if it helps. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, they'll do this for other diseases. This is the part that I don't get. You, you, If you have cancer, you're given one chemotherapy drug after another, after another, after another, and they're all toxic. I mean, they're all doing damage. So, but that's perfectly fine because their life is at stake. Well, Lyme disease patients' lives are at stake also. Well, is that really what it is, Dr. Hunter, or is it, and, and I'm going to ask you two more questions, and I know Tony has a lot he wants to geek out with you on, but have we sort of created these tunnels for politically aggressive groups? For example, um, you know, have we have we created have we created a tunnel for cancer because we know you're going to die anyway, right? So we have a tunnel where aggressive um, you know advocates have allowed um, have allowed for um, you know this kind of trial and error with people with cancer, and we sort of maybe have another tunnel for AIDS. Where we, you know, where we had, you know, people dying in a very short period of time, and 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 people organized, and they ultimately created a tunnel there. But for every other disease, if you don't follow the 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 medically accepted guidelines that have been created by researchers like you, doctors are putting themselves in a position where they're going to have their license pulled or at least threatened, right? And right. they're not allowed to be treated you know, clinically. So, so I guess the reaction I'm trying to ask ask for you as a researcher who's on the other, you know, side of the team is 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 do you think we should really be putting these kinds of handcuffs on clinicians or should we be giving clinicians the freedom not just in sort of tunneled areas like cancer and aids and maybe now Lyme disease but really let cl clinicians do their job and you know if they believe that they have an outlier let them treat an outlier and let's not be critical of of, of clinicians who are doing that kind of work because i can tell you most of the other researchers that we've interviewed have been like wagging their finger at clinicians like, you know, for example, like Dr. Horowitz is one of the most brilliant people we've ever interviewed. And we had one, you know, brilliant, you know, researcher um, who was like, he's doing terrible things and he shouldn't be treating people clinically, you know, and, and, and he shouldn't be using these antibiotics because we don't have research to support the, you know, the double dapsone uh, protocol, right? I mean, he, the, I mean, this guy was, you know, all but calling Horowitz a, a quack. Uh, because he's on the other side of the divide, which is on the research side. But, you know, the, the, I, I can't tell you people who are dying to get into Horowitz's practice because of the successes that he's having. So give me your perspective as a researcher about your colleagues who are wagging fingers at the clinicians for uh, for treating people with the clinical observations that they're making. Well, first of all, Rich Horowitz has published several papers um, and, and they're well done papers that have basically shown the efficacy of his treatment. Now it doesn't work for everybody um, and it is a tough treatment, but I would argue that his, you know, the DAPSone protocol is uh, he 
borrowed that from tuberculosis. So, <laughs> you know, so it's okay for tuberculosis patients to go through this, but it's not okay for Lyme disease patients to go through this. I mean, and honestly, the diagnostic criteria for tuberculosis are, is almost as ridiculous as it is for Lyme disease. I don't know but, if you but, that but he, he's, he's, he's a clinician. He's not coming from the research world. And because but he's, he's publishing and he's, he's publishing using the scientific yeah. method. So yeah. in other words, he, he has proof that what he is doing isn't is making a difference not like i said you know his efficacy rate i think is about 50 percent, right but that's 50 percent. that's 50 percent more people that now have their lives back that didn't before shouldn't everybody have that kind of access and quite honestly sure. you know, you're sure. talking about giving tools to clinicians but i i would say that what needs to happen is patients need to stand up and exert you know just we there needs to be a greater um you know, patient rights thing where it's sort of like, let me make the decision. You tell me, all right, so you take this antibiotic and it might cause this, that, that. Let the patient decide. I would, I want to try that because it might make a difference in my life or it might not. And if it doesn't, then we'll try something else. But that should be the patient's choice. That is the whole thing behind, you know, the right to informed consent. So if you're going to do, and you know, the AMA has a whole blurb on, you know, your patients have this right. So it's like, yeah, we have the right, but you try to exert that right. And you get a lot of pushback from that. So you just, and a lot of people don't, you know, I'm not one of those people, but a lot of people don't, um, you know, if the doctor says something it's like, oh, the doctor said, so that's the way, we're, you know, I'm going to do it that way. Um, and I, you know, you mentioned Dr. Boroscano when we were still trying to work with our primary care physician and I found Dr. Boroscano's guidelines, I brought them to him and I said, this is a standard, I'm here to advocate for this standard of care. To my doctor's great credit, he uh, read it and went through it and he was willing to try, you know, and at that point, really the, the big thing was, you know, upping the dose of doxycycline and doing it for a longer period of time, right? And, you know, what was wrong with that? Nothing. And you, know, like, you know, the other thing, one of the things that, that um, Dr. McDonald told us is when his, when his wife was diagnosed with Lyme disease, actually, your scanner had used, used minocycline. Uh, yeah. and, and, and what happened was that one of the, one of the challenges that your scanner had to deal with was that, uh, you know, when he was going through that process with trying to defend his med medical licenses, is, is that her liver counts had had uh, gone high. And as a result, he had to back down on the minocycline, right? And he wasn't allowed to use it anymore. And that's why he was going through the, but as it turns out, you you had listed the three different drugs that that you know that are that are now being researched and which of these which of these um, which of these um, drugs would be most effective at the acute phase, right? And and what what Doctor um, Doctor McDonald has subsequently learned is that is that uh, Lyme the Lyme bacteria very aggressively invades your liver as a, as a vehicle for reducing your capacity to detox. And one of the reasons he now knows 40 years later, that his wife's liver counts were, were, were being altered by the minocycline, which is much more effective at dealing with the, with, with the uh, bacteria in the liver is because it was killing the bacteria in her liver, which is trying to shut down a liver so that she couldn't detox as part of its effort to, you know, destroy the immune system. Right? So, your scanner was on that again in the in the seventies and the eighties, and was you know was and, and it was shut down. And now we're looking at the so you know we you know we just we keep seeing this pattern of clinicians making observations in the field that are having success and and being taken away 
because there isn't adequate research to support what they're seeing in the wild, and because there isn't adequate research, then then we can't um, then we can't use it, right? I'm going to ask you one more question, and I'll let Tony geek out with you. And that is one of the biggest concerns that I have about the research in in your community, despite us now having some, you know, some enlightened people like you who are personally invested in in stepping outside of the box because you've had your own personal experience with your child having having uh, dealt with these chronic issues. Um, most of the research dollars are going to research one strain of one bacteria. Right. That's what we're finding. So what, if what money there is. Well, well, okay. Well, but but well, we're, we're looking at we're looking at one thing, Tony. Right? We're looking at one strain of one bacteria, and you you earlier pointed out that all of these different strains are going to have different presentations. And why are we not seeing a bullseye rash in some cases? Well, maybe it's the Japanese form of the you know the Japanese strain, or maybe it's the European strain, or maybe it's you know birds fly everywhere, right? But we're but so so I'm not really excited about where we're going with the research, especially since I've argued to you that we define it as a polymicrobial infection. If we're only looking at one strain of one bacteria, how long is it going to take before we get to a place where we can have diagnostic tools that will allow us to really define what's going on with people? And how long after that is it going to take us to be able to get to the point where we can now uh, start to work on the immunotherapies that we're going to need to use? Because we now have a test that we're going to define, right? And 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 should we be as 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 um, as patients, should we be concerned about that? As patients, we should be concerned about a lot of things. Um, so you know, going back to the working with just one species, and you know, part of that is because these bacteria. So as a re you know, doing microbiology research um, that leads to medical research, one of the things that you know, we rely on is being able to grow the bacteria outside of the host, outside of the human body. And then we can do things with it, right? We can try antibiotics against it. We can, I mean, every other disease, every other infectious disease um, that we can do this with has been done that way. And we, there are not that many strains of Borrelia that are um, culturable, right? So they are alive, but we, you know, we can't quite get them to stay alive in an easy way, right? This is why culture-based tests are not necessarily going to be the approach because sometimes they don't grow. Sometimes they do grow. Sometimes they grow and stop and then they start growing again. You know, this is all part of the nature of the bacteria. So I'm going to give a shout out to the bacteria for being part of the problem, um, you know, with the research that we have with all this. So that part, um, you know, it, it, it's not that there aren't good ideas. Number one, it's we have a it's a hard thing to do. Um, although now we have really great molecular tools, and so we, you know, we're less dependent on growing the bacteria than we have ever been in history. So we we do have that going for us, um, looking ahead to the future. But you know, the issue with research is funding and um, the fact that it has not been prioritized by NIH or HHS um, for various reasons because they are being, you know, they follow what they view to be the expert opinion, which is really the Infectious Disease Society of America view of this disease. Um, so, you know, that there hasn't been a whole lot of interest in funding these diseases, but on that side. And then what I have to say is over the past 10 years, and this would include focus online, you know, it's just, all right. So if the federal government isn't going to fund research, then we, the patients need to step up and fund it, find ways to do it. And so I would say over the past 
10 years. I mean, you know, when I first got into this game, there was LymeDisease.org <laughs> and there was the LDA, Lyme Disease Association. And um, from those two resources, I learned so much. And then since then, a, a bunch of other organizations, Project Lyme, Global Lyme Alliance, although Global Lyme Alliance had been um, in the picture for a while, you know, before that. Um, and, you know, Project Lyme, Bay Area Lyme, for example, all of these are came about in the past 12 years. They're raising funds like crazy. They're funding research. A lot of the, the best research has been funded by these organizations privately. Yep. And, you know, that that does have an impact on public funding for research. So in other words, now we have all these results that we can use to request funding for other research um, and that so it's happening and it's not happening fast enough, um, but it is certainly, you know, go it's rolling. We're rolling on that particular aspect of it. And another thing, you know, I want to give a shout out to Center for Lyme Action, who um, is an advocacy organization that started three years ago. But they're at, you know, they're a lobbying. I mean, basically, that's what we needed was a, a group to go lobby. I mean, we were fighting against medical lobbies who are basically saying, you know, fund this, fund that, don't fund that, that's not important. Right. And right. now that we have a, a voice, you know, funding it has increased a lot. We're or over $100,000, which, you know, sounds like $100 million, sorry. <laughs> it sounds like, oh, you know, that that's a real ton. But when you compare it to other diseases, it actually isn't so much money, but we're getting there, you know. Um, so I, I, I'm looking at where we are now compared to where we were 10 years ago. And although the progress has been slow, I think that, you know, we're, we've, the, we're right at the top of the hill, the stone, the big rock is like right there. And it's, it just needs a little, little more force to get it over the hill. And then it's going to start sliding downhill and we'll, we'll see some real progress. So let's it's, circle it's back to the good. question. I'm sorry. Sorry. Sorry, Rich. So I wanted to circle back to where Tony had taken you so I can now hand you off to him because he's, he has a whole bunch of questions to geek out with you on. And that is that, that we, we, we had left the persister state and we, we were talking about, we were talking about uh, the, the challenges that, that are associated with not having the capacity to engage in early intervention. So Tony, you want to take, the, take us back to that and talk about, uh, talk about the challenges that come along with our inability to intervene early either because we don't find a tick bite, we don't uh, have doctors who understand what steps should be taken, we don't have a clean set of standards that doctors feel comfortable with when, di uh, when diagnosing and ultimately prescribing medications. Now we get to this phase where now this bacteria has taken off, they start to colonize, they start to form groups with, with, with each other and other types of bacteria. And now that puts us in this position where we have this biofilm that becomes very um, you know, difficult for our immune system to deal with. And we have all kinds of things going on inside that biofilm. So Tony, one of the things we had talked about on your, on your episode is, is what starts to happen, of course, within the biofilm is that these different bacteria start to exchange DNA and they start to reform and they start to do all kinds of things within that biofilm. So maybe we can, uh, Dr. Hearn, you, you can take us there. What's happening inside that biofilm and why is it more than just protecting the bacteria that's a concern, but the exchange of proteins and, and, and all kinds of things that are going on there that are like reforming the, the, the very bacteria that our immune system should have a code to, to, to kill, but then doesn't when it reforms. 
Okay, so I'll, I'll, and then Tony, pop in when you want to, okay? But um, so what I was saying about the biofilm of Borrelia, you know, so there's what we understand about biofilms comes from our experience with other bacteria, mostly that are easy to grow, easy to watch the biofilm, you know, easy to, again, going back to that, you can grow them outside the, outside of a host, you can grow them in culture. So we know a lot of information about those bacteria, but um, in terms of what the, the Borrelia biofilm is, there's not, there really has not been a huge amount of information. So Dr. Eva Sapi has done um, a lot of work with that, but nonetheless, you know, she's, it's just one lab and it's hard to characterize what's actually in those biofilms. And as a result, I'm, I don't, I'm, I don't think, I don't, I mean, I know what the definition of a biofilm is in terms of looking at Pseudomonas aeruginosa, that's another bacteria that um, is well known for its ability to produce biofilms. But when you compare the classic biofilm with what Borrelia is doing, there are huge differences there. And I'm, I'm not surprised at that, honestly, because, you know, they're not the same bacteria. They, they live life differently, very differently. Um, so I don't think you can use the classic biofilm model for Lyme disease, um, you know, what the bacteria are, they will establish themselves in tissues, they form colonies, they bind to the, um, the, you know, the, it's a protein within the collagen fibers, right? So it binds their decorin binding protein and it binds and it will start to establish these micro colonies and they will grow. But once it's in tissue, we don't really know a heck of a lot about what is going on beyond that. So there's some research now saying that, you know, the, the bacteria in the, the biofilm as they, they drop their cell walls and they have this chemical called peptidoglycan, which is part of the cell wall of the bacteria. And, you know, that's part of the matrix of biofilms for many bacteria, it's part of the cement that holds the fortress together. And so there's a research team that is basically, um, you know, indicating that they they have found that the peptidoglycan itself, this protein that the bacteria um, leave behind, if you will, in you know, so whether or not it's the dead bacteria that are leaving behind these body parts, or if it's part of the building material within their biofilms, it's there one way or the other, and they have really good evidence that it's the peptid, it's that that's driving this, um, you know, these extreme flares of inflammation. Which let's say that's the hallmark of Lyme disease is just you know inflammatory escalating infl inflammation and all all over the place multisystemically so i it's so in other words i we need more research I, this is this is an area where it would be good to take the build on what dr sapi has done and um, do a deeper dive into you know what actually is going on within those uh, structures within tissues but to do that you have to have tissues um, you have to have a tissue collection um, you have to, you know, biorepositories, and we lack that in this field too. So again, that's also changing thanks to Bay Area Lyme. Um, you know, they, they have started not just the blood biorepository, but they also have a tissue biorepository now, although there's not a ton of samples in there. And I also have to say Columbia is doing this too. And um, Dr. Monica Embers at Tulane University is working with Columbia University um, mostly brain tissues where the, the um, you know, the, the brain tissue from people who have died with chronic Lyme has been shipped down there and they have found, she's found spirochetes in there. And that is disturbing to me because, you know, my kid, <laughs> 
And Tony, right, is like, are they in there? Are they not? And if they are, what are they doing? And I just like to hope that if you keep doing the right things, you can keep them under control, or maybe they're not there at all. I don't know. But the fact that, you know, they are able to find, physically find using pathological methods. So in other words, this is direct detection. We're not guessing here. There they are. You know, so that is obviously part of the pathology involved with that. And we need more studies like that. We're talking about five brains, right? So, you know, we need a bigger sample size before that's going to get accepted in the medical world as proof that right. all cases are the result of this, right? So we have, there's a long ways, you know, we've made progress. There's still a long way to go, but we need to do what we did with HIV, um, and really do a deep dive into that and just say, holy cow, this is impacting a huge number of people and it's ruining their lives. I mean, granted, you know, I, AIDS was, you know, at one point a lethal disease, right? You were going to die. I, not that Lyme doesn't make you wish you were dead, <laughs> but nonetheless, we need that kind of energy. We need that kind of investment in time and resources in this disease as well. Right. There's sort of a formula for the trajectory of these things, and it includes the scientific approach, education, advocacy, but then activism, which causes change and which all that equals uh, public policy changes, right? But that activism part is missing. And that activism part is missing because we don't have enough smoking guns. If we don't have enough brains being for, for every Alzheimer patient, every MS patient, every person diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, mm -hmm. that brain tissue should be examined for the presence of spirochetes. Mm -hmm. and, I, and we need, in order for us, and you know, AIDS had a direct cause, cause. you got AIDS, you died. So, so ACT UP was able to influence public change because it filled that activism role. We don't have that right now and we need it. So um, I'm, I, I'm heartened by some of the things I've heard and I have, I have some research questions for you that I'm burning to ask you whenever it's my turn. It's your turn. <laughs> Is it my turn? Okay. Um, so the first, before we, before we get into the research, I, uh, this is a personal indulgence. What is the connection to iron? And there are consistent increases in ferritin levels for patients who have chronic Lyme disease. Um, I, I've heard that Borrelia uses iron for cellular respiration, and I've heard from others that that's wrong. It uses uh, uh, glycogen or glucose, just like we do. But how do how does how does the Borrelia bacteria eat? So that's a really cool question, and um, they don't. So to take food and turn it into energy, there are many different sources, right? But one thing that really does not have is the ability to, they don't have the ability to do um, respiration. And that means electron transport system. They don't have any of the enzymes to do that. They basically live on fermentation. So in other words, they have to take, and when I say sugars, I don't want you to, you know, there's actually many, many different forms of this but they only have the ability to go through like this very first part of the respiratory process to make ATP. And they don't really make a ton of it, which is why it takes them so long to grow because the energy conversion process is not the most efficient, uh, you know, the ways to do this. 
it's not efficient, but it also keeps you under the radar. So it's kind of a brilliant, you know, uh, trade-off, if you will. So they grow slow, but our immune system is always on the lookout for these things. And if they, you know, kind of creep in along, they, it's another one of the way that they evade detection is to not be super active. So, but that, I, I don't know if that answered your question, but they don't do respiration. So, you know, and the, uh, the idea of iron and, um, that I think a lot of that has more to do with the uh, impacts on um, your bone marrow and being able to produce red blood cells and things along those lines that that's probably where the iron issues are coming from. And then when anybody says iron, I always think about Bartonella and I think about Babesia because they actually do infect red blood cells and ultimately cause their destruction. So, you know, there's that part as well to add just to make it more complicated because you know, why would we want this to be simple? <laughs> right. right. Um, you know, uh, in my line of work, I, it's it's my job to uh, to identify patterns and to exploit those patterns for um, their best uses. Right. And so we see patterns of behavior in in in, in consumer behavior, in the way businesses talk to other businesses. So like there are patterns all over the place that we in marketing and branding identify. So I see so much. I see so many Lyme patients who have increased albumin levels. They have increased ferritin levels. All of these things are pointing to this action going on in the liver, right? And, and liver damage that ensues as a result. We're already, I mean, uh, we're already in a compromised position and now we're taking antibiotics and, and pain relievers and things that have a high impact on, on our livers. So um, I'm in, interested to see where that research goes, but I wanna ask you some personal questions for, for, for our uh, viewers and listeners so they get to know you and your work a little bit better. Um, but the first question I have for you is how is your daughter doing? Well, thank you for asking that question. So, um, you know, my daughter, I was, she, if, all right. So, I mean, really should ask her that question, but, um, you know, she views herself as having emerged from the other side. Um, that doesn't mean that she doesn't have times where she crashes. Um, but I mean, her crashes are not like they used to be. Her crashes are, I have to go to bed. It's eight o'clock, <laughs> you know, and then she'll wake up the next morning and be able to carry on. You know, she is doing a lot better. And if I, you know, we used to rank, I used to ask her on a daily basis, okay, what's your, you know, your grade today? And she'd say, oh, it's an 80%, you know, right. and, um, you know, we, went from about a 20% to 60, 65, 70. And then now she's like, eh, I put myself in the, I'm in the upper nineties. You know, she, she really is feeling pretty well. And yes. at that, I mean, at this point, she's in charge of her own care and she does a lot, you know, she really does do a lot of um, things in terms of dietary, you know, she's just really cautious about everything, which I'm sure you are too. And um, avoids inflammation, anything that could possibly be inflammatory, um, you know, she stays away from. And so she's, she's, she's doing pretty well. Great. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, uh, the next question I have for you is, can you summarize the Lyme research that you've performed to date? Well, <laughs> so um what we and this is going to focus on Lyme I assume that's the question you're asking specifically right um, in general the, the the Lyme research 
that, uh, that you've done to date? And, and how did that lead you to focus on Lyme? Well, I've, focus on Lyme happened um, through Dr. Horowitz, actually, because uh, Tammy Crawford, who is my partner in Lyme, um, her daughter, Jessica, who happens to be just about the same age as my daughter, also an athlete. Also, I mean, when we talk about our stories, it it's just like, oh, my, you know, they're the same. It's, it's pretty much the same. Um, so Tammy actually, because she in Arizona, you know, doctors have, it's just like Lyme disease. What the heck is that? You know, they just really don't really think about it because it's not Arizona is not thought to be an endemic state. And, you know, nobody gets it in, in Arizona, but that's not true. When she finally did get diagnosed with Lyme disease um, once, because she went through months of trying to figure out what was wrong with Jessica, with her daughter. Um, they, you know, immediately started once the Lyme disease diagnosis occurred, she immediately went to the internet and found who, what the Lyme specialists were. And she found Dr. Horowitz, Rich Horowitz. So they made an appointment. Um, actually she hunted him down at a ILADS conference. <laughs> and, uh, at that point he was sort of at the edge of not taking any new patients, but she talked him into it. So they flew from New York, um, or from Arizona to New York, landed in a snowstorm, you know, how classic is that for New York? Um, and she was, they were basically stuck at, there, there for a week, you know, they, they stay there for a week. And so she started talking with some of the people that were in Rich Horowitz's office. Uh, and she said, so then she, she had this idea that she wanted to start an organization. I mean, this is what we do, right? It's, it's just like, we got to change this. We're going to start a 501c3. And she had that idea. And so she asked um, one of the people working in uh, Dr. Horowitz's office if, if she knew any microbiologists. And so I get this call from um, Phyllis Freeman, who is in Dr. Horowitz's office saying, okay, so I might've given your name and address out to somebody from Arizona. And I was like, okay, I'll talk to her, you know, just whatever I can do to help. And then as soon as we started talking and we, on, we saw the parallels to that, Focus Online was born and that was that. Was that. And we both realized that, you know, what we needed first was the other advocacy organizations were doing a good job, you know, with awareness and education and um, even political advocacy, because that's really what I was doing at that point. And but we needed to focus on the things that were going to make a difference in people's lives. And that's where we moved into the research leading to an accurate diagnostic test. I mean, that has been our focus pretty much since we came together. Um, and, you know, the other focus, of course, is to take what we're learning from our diagnostic research and turning it into a therapeutic. And I think we there's hope for that, honestly, a targeted therapeutic for, um, you know, that would address not just the infection, but also some of the other, um, you know, immune system issues and other things that go along with that. So my, you know, my research, you know, once my daughter was diagnosed, I, I started doing research on what are ways to do this? So I grew the bacteria in my laboratory. I started with di different antibiotics, trying to figure out what would be the best approach. We, uh, my daughter actually uh, very successfully used a Rife machine. I don't know if you're familiar with a Rife machine, but, and the story about how we came to that was another <laughs> one of these weird coincidences. But I, so I wanted to find out if this Rife machine actually worked in my so at that time, I there was a person working at Skidmore College, which is a local college here in Saratoga Springs, who was um, working with harmonics. So we collaborated on a project, and I had my students do um, research where we exposed 
in culture, right? We expose spirochetes in culture to rife machine, no rife machine, um, antibiotics, no antibiotics, uh, you know, a bunch of other things. And, you know, that research was very successful. And actually I had students take that research to um, that international scientific conferences to present. So, you know, basically what I showed was that the rife machine in combination with antibiotics did in test tube, right? In test tube could kill the spirochete, could stop them from growing and it was actually lethal to them. So it wasn't just putting them into suspended animation, it was able to kill them. Right. So that part, um, you know, that was what I was doing myself in my lab. And then once I started working with Tammy, we connected with um, TGen, right? Translational Genomics Institute who, uh, to try to do a uh, diagnostic based on um, RNA-seq, which is a sequencing method for RNA, uh, which was different than the other sequencing methods. We uh, also reached out, we, we've worked with, um, you know, basically we have funded studies in pretty much every area that where there's a possibility of a diagnostic test coming out of it, we've, we've investigated that. So we looked at culture as a possibility. I actually did that in my own laboratory, right? Trying to come up with a, a better way to culture them so that, because that is the gold standard, right? If you can culture them from somebody's body, then they are present and antibiotics actually has a place for that. Um, but we, you know, we worked with uh, various la other laboratories. We've um, contracted to do some RNA work with other laboratories, with Galaxy Labs, with Tulane, and at the end of the day, uh, Drexel University, we actually had them do whole genome sequencing, which was basically to take look for every possible bit of pathogen DNA that might be in somebody's blood. Um, and at the end of the day, we took all that and synthesized it down to where we are now. Um, so, you know, it, it there's a lot of individual projects. There's probably five or six of them that all came, you know, we evaluated them and said, this is what has the most promise. And I got to tell you that for diagnostics, uh, the because it is not just one disease, because, you know, we're talking about early acute, we're talking about early disseminated, then later disseminated stages, these are different diseases, right? And by disease, I mean, the illness that the patients experience, it's different. And we, what we're finding out is physiologically, it is different. Serologically, it is different. Um, gene expression wise, it is different. So that all that came together and that's where, where we're at now um, with our, you know, pending diagnostic, which I mean, I always, <laughs> Tammy and I have a joke. It's like, we're going to name the company next week diagnostics because every, all the results are coming next week. Right. <laughs> or so it's, but I mean, I, we're, you know, so like next week we're going to have <laughs> results, but I, you know, I, I think it's fair to say within the next couple of months, uh, I'd be able to report back and say, you know, we're, we're really someplace with this and we're going to take it forward. So. Do you think a 100% accurate diagnostic test will ever be possible? No, I really don't. But I think we can get pretty darn close. And, you know, accuracy is a funny word because accuracy, there's, you know, sensitivity and specificity. So you want to make sure you don't have any false negatives, but you also don't want any false positives. So, you know, but the point being people, people are too different. And in other words, our, our immune responses are different. Um, the bacteria interact with our immune responses differently. 
So I, I really don't think that um, any one test is going to be the one size fits all that gives, you know, the, the full answer. And that we, we pretty much concluded that it's going to, it's a multi-pronged approach. Um, so maybe two, one for early, one for later kind of thing, um, because one, one test is not going to cover all the bases. Hmm. What did your colleagues think uh, when you told them about the kind of research that you were doing? My colleagues where? Uh, which I, colleagues? I, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, at the university where you're, where, where you're housed, your other research colleagues, other, other scientists, uh, has, has your work been well-received by them? Do they think it's interesting? Yeah, they do. They think it's very interesting. And, you know, they um, also think I'm a little crazy, but, you know, who doesn't? So that's perfectly fine, too. Um, just, I mean, because, you know, I'm at a college, right? So our focus right. is education and it's, you know, getting students interested in a treat and wanting to go on to get your PhD and, and do all that stuff. So, um, but, you know, the fact that I've been able to engage undergraduates in this research is, you know, a lot of people have a lot of respect for that. I don't know that they fully, not everybody fully understands the stakes uh, because not, I can tell you that my colleagues that have Lyme disease or have family or friends that have Lyme disease get it and understand the issues. Um, so, you know, everybody's been really super supportive of that. And in the, the rest of the world of Lyme research, I would say we have collaborated with everybody and, you know, it's quite a team. So the Lyme researchers, is not that many yet, um, although that, that's going to change too, because now there's funding for fellows, right, medical fellows to um, get medical training in Lyme disease at Johns Hopkins University, for example, and other places. So I think that's going to change too. But, you know, the community of Lyme researchers are uh, doing great work and supporting each other as best we can. And the good news, you know, new ones are coming in. So I'm, I'm happy about all that too. Tell us about the most exciting discovery you've encountered most recently. Um, the most exciting discovery would be, I think, the fact that there are ways to detect what our bodies are doing in response to infection with this bacteria. And by what our bodies are doing, I'm talking about gene expression. So in other words, turning some genes on, turning some genes off. Um, now we have tools that allow us to, you know, fine tune that. And I have to say, you know, one of those tools, which I have not worked with, but one of them is really int intriguing to me is a technology called CRISPR. I don't know if you are. Yes. Right. So, I mean, that's the latest shiny object. It's like, oh, CRISPR right. is going to solve every, the world's problems. But, you know, we thought that was, we've, you know, didn't it doesn't always work out that way. It's not going to solve every problem, but it's certainly, um, is intriguing to look at that. And I know the CDC is actually funding studies uh, related to using CRISPR for a diagnostic test, which would be a direct test, right? Um, there are ways to, deter, to detect how the immune system is responding by looking at gene expression. And the good news is if we can figure out, you know, what genes are being turned off or turned on, now we have the ability to go back there and reverse that, right? So if the bacteria are shutting down certain types of genes because they're, they want us, our immune system to be screwed up. Technically we can block them from doing that technically, right? I mean, theoretically we can block them from doing that. 
And, you know, we're at a point with one of the biomarkers that we're working with um, that this, that's, you know, the next step would be to take that to the, let's see if we can make a therapeutic out of it. And we're not the only ones looking at that, but, you know, the point being, one thing I have learned is working with different universities is that the process is long and tedious. Um, translation of discoveries, research discoveries made in a university requires an outside interest to come in and say, I want that technology. I'm going to license it. We're going to take it to the commercial levels. So that although there's tons and tons of research, not a whole lot is translated into, <clears throat> excuse me, the patient space, right? Where it's going to make a difference in patients' lives. Um, it, so we, you know, we learned that uh, certainly the hard way and we'll be sharing that with everybody. It's like, okay, so there's this great research go after it, right? Go get it, take it, take it out of the university and, and move forward with it. And that's actually what we're working on too, is to be, you know, universities are tough. You know, they just, uh, everything goes kind of slowly, but I, and I work for a huge system, SUNY, you know, so I, I get it. But um, on the other hand, like I said, we're all impatient. We want results. So, so if we have to do it ourselves. We'll do it ourselves. Um. There are a few animals known to kill Borrelia um, uh, within their body systems. Uh, there are certain lizards, for example, that if are bit by a tick, uh, that they have the ability to kill the bacteria. Is there any research being done around those animals and uh, and their and their their makeup that might give us some clues as to how we might be able to do the same thing? Yeah, so I read those papers when they came out about the, and they're, you know, so people were kind of looking at them, but remember, lizards are reptiles. Um, and opossum, so, I think, is another one. Pop, opossums? Yeah, right. Maybe. But opossums are just good tick eaters, right? Okay. I, I, I think that what they do is they are very happy to chomp on the ticks when they get right. attached. So in other words, they remove them and eat them. <laughs> So that maybe that would be the approach. We just have to find the ticks and, you know, just chew them. Anyway. Um, you know, um, when I, when, when, when I was sick for a, for a long time, I started to ask a lot of metaphysical questions and I started to ask um, questions like why, how, what's the, what is the purpose for this? Right. Because. Yeah. Even if we consider the numbers, the CDC is willing to admit, willing to admit, three hundred thousand cases a year. But if you if you, if you do the math on this, the 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 predominant tests used to diagnose the uh, uh, Lyme disease are only fifty percent accurate, which means the real number is probably around six hundred thousand. So in the last ten years, we have millions and millions of Americans that are sick that are not being treated, they're not being taken care of, and they've been gaslit left and right by physicians. I most recently was gaslit by a neurologist. I was, my trajectory was, I went to Cape Cod with friends. Um, I, did, I had the bullseye rash, but didn't know what it was. Then I developed a huge rash on the inside of my thighs and got very sick, started having seizures, brain fevers, inability to regulate my body's temperature, um, a thousand bee stings all over my body. I went to, I, uh, I, the first doctor I went to was a neurologist. And I said, I think I may have Lyme disease. Waved his hand in my face and said, you don't have Lyme disease. And, um, and then uh, uh, 
did a MRI on me and said that I did not have any lesions on my brain, yet I had had lesions on my brain on a previous test. Well, I waited, so it took me 24 months to get to, to, to find out that I was truly uh, uh, positive for Lyme disease. And, um, and then anecdotally, uh, most likely Babesia and Bartonella, but I have not had the test to determine those two for sure. Um, why not? Why haven't, why haven't you had that test done? Well, I just did in a test, of, I came back positive for Babesia and I had the, uh, I had the antibodies for Bartonella. And so, um, so, so we're doing that. But uh, so I left Western medicine for, because it let me down, it took me two, two years. And I finally got the diagnosis. Nothing's covered by insurance. At that, this point, I'm $200,000 unreimbursed of my own money. If I was a checker at Walmart, I'd be dead today. I happen to have money so I can fund my treatment, right? So I left Western medicine, went to naturopathic medicine, discovered Focus Online, Dr. Horowitz, the physician here in Arizona that treats me, who I will not name. And then... Um, and so uh, 11 years has gone by. I decided to go back to Western medicine, uh, largely because of my insurance requires me to have a general practitioner. So I went back to a neurologist. So it's been 11 years since the first time I went. I went to a neurologist who walked in the door, who had already diagnosed me before even seeing me, who um, diagnosed me by uh, she did the uh, physical exam with the hammer on the knee and had me walk down a hallway. And that's how she diagnosed me. She used the MRI from the previous neurologist. How she got access to it, I don't know. It was not my, I don't re remember giving permission, but she somehow had that and then diagnosed me, said I did not have M MS and gave me a 20 minute lecture on how the environment is filled with bacteria and viruses. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're infected with them. Okay, so for patients who are suffering from any kind of chronic and potentially terminal illness, we know that mindset is important. Yeah. To be continuously gaslit by the medical community is, it, it is beyond unethical. Right, she didn't. She did not offer to redo the to do the another MRI. She wouldn't even entertain the. Uh, uh, she wouldn't even entertain an idea of pursuing uh, any other kind of test because I have seizures. Uh, didn't seem to be important to her. So I, I ended up leaving that experience feeling all of the trauma response that I had from the last eleven years. Mm -hmm. So for us. We are, we are so thankful for you and the work that you're doing, because I think that diagnostic tool is going to take the politics out of all of this stuff. Because for me, as a patient, you can't help but walk away from an experience like that, thinking there's a conspiracy theory going on, mm -hmm. that something is going on, that there's some collusion going on to kind of push the patients down, make them think it's all in their head and get them out the door. Well, Tony, let's talk about that a little bit, because I think you're getting to the same, we're sort of coming right back to the point we were coming to before with the research, right? And uh, I, I think there is a conspiracy, right? And, and, and the conspiracy, unfortunately, is not at the clinical level, which is where most of our guests believe that it is. And I think you're arguing that it's, that it's at the clinical level as well. I'm arguing it's at the research level. 
right? And and what's happening when you have the gatekeepers at the research level preventing any type of uh, any type of research from being published, other than those that fit within the parameters of defining Lyme the way they're defining it. What happens is that doctors then have to step out of the standard of care that they're required to utilize and then put their licenses at risk, right? So, so the there is a conspiracy, but the conspiracy is between insurance companies and, and the research that's being funded and the and the gatekeepers or the boards of these of these medical journals and probably pharmaceutical companies, which we, we only started to touch upon with Dr. Hearn uh, before. So there is a conspiracy, but I I, I don't think the, you know, I don't think it's really that, you know, well-intentioned doctors who want to come into the community and help people get better are the ones that are a part of that conspiracy. I think they're a victim of the conspiracy as much as the patients are. I think it's really happening at that higher level. And I'm just wondering, you know, if the two of you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that. Um, as I said, the doctors that I have spoken with, and I've spoken with a lot of them because I, you know, that, on my educational tours, I, you know, I hope to talk to physicians and I have reached out to several to just get the perspective. Why are you not treating, why are you viewing this as, you know, just some sort of medical mystery as opposed to the most obvious explanation, which is this Lyme disease. And, you know, what they just tell me is we need tools, right? That's what, you know, what they want is a diagnostic test to say yes or no. And I'm, you know, it's so I don't, you know, I, I don't blame them because they are following the rules, the, right? The the way that there's a standard of care, you follow the standard of care, that way you are protected, you are following evidence-based, you know, this whole idea of evidence-based medicine to which I say, yes, but what evidence are you using? <laughs> you know, because uh, the problem is the evidence that, that the IDSA guidelines are based on the writers of those guidelines, as you mentioned, Rich, are the same people that published those papers who basically said, you know, Lyme disease is a bullseye rash. And if you don't have it, you don't have Lyme, you know? So that part is, you know, and unfortunately those players are still in position. position So, I mean, you know, the other, the other good news is they're in their seventies. So one can only hope that (laughs) (laughs) I don't really want to do this anymore. And I think at that point, because they serve as a roadblock, I mean, honestly, dogma serves as a roadblock to change it. Science is not like that. Science is not roadblock. Science is always saying, you know, there's more science that, you know, nothing is ever settled. We got to keep looking, even when we think it is. But when you have guidelines that are like written in stone, it's harder for them to get around, I guess. I, I don't know how else to put it. So, but there's another piece of this, Tony, you were talking about mindset and the, the importance of mindset, right? And, and, and of course, mindset controls cognition, right? Theory, which is nothing more than a belief, will control cognition. And when you have these doctors, again, who are well-intentioned people, I don't think people go to medical school other than because they want to help people who are sick, right? They want to get people out of pain. That's why they go to medical school. And what happens is that when they're given this specific training based on the limitations that the, that the, that the, you know, the research gatekeepers are, are, are limiting them to, that belief in their head is what's now controlling the cognition. So what's happening in the patient community is you're feeling gaslit because 
because these, these medical professionals literally can't see what's right in front of them. But the reason they can't see what's not in front of them is not only because they're incentivized not to see it, but because their mindset is limiting their cognition. And that's why we have this conflict. And what we have when, you know, when we interview doctors is, is they're just burning out because you know, they're, they're, they, they become doctors because they want to help people. They come, become doctors because they want to end suffering and they know they're not doing it. And when you put those two things together, it's, 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 it's resulting in burnout and the system's failing for everyone. And so many good doctors are leaving you know, the, the medical profession because they know they're not helping. And, and, and you know, so, so part of, you know, Tony, part of what I'd like you to think about and maybe react to unwashed now, but maybe we can talk about this even more in the future is how much of this is really driven by the mindset of the medical professionals based on their training and based on their continuing education that's limiting them because the, the full breadth of research is not available to them. There's ways around that. Please share. Uh, I, I, I like to use this example. If, you, if you've ever heard of the uh, ACEs report, it measures adverse childhood experiences and they can quantify that, that if a child has this many adverse childhood experiences, the propensity for obesity, alcoholism, incarceration, divorce, murder go, goes up and they can track and they can tell you literally, you know, what's going to happen to a community of children, especially where they have high incidences of adverse child experiences. We, um, bullying is, 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 uh, is, is, it's a pandemic. It's it's everywhere, right? And so we were focused on preventing bullying in schools, and it was so politicized, and it was turned into this big thing that you know the LGBT community is trying to indoctrinate people. The legislator legislature went nuts, and we had an an anti-bullying piece of legislation that got killed in committee, and then they passed a a, a no homo promo law where you're not allowed to talk about being gay in, uh, in K through 12, right? So um, all we wanted to do was protect children. So ultimately what we ended up doing was saying the hell with that. And we focused, we went, we went school district by school district. We presented the best evidence-based program that uh, had a long-term impact on school climate and the best program is the Olveus method, which is basically you remove all of the opportunities for bullying. Uh, every bus stop, every bus, every bathroom, every cafeteria, every hallway, it's all monitored, right? The same approach could be for here. For I, sure. If we had a diagnostic, maybe we're going around uh, by, by this backwards. If we had a tool to prove people were dying from Lyme disease, then that could compel action, but we're focusing on a tool to identify if someone has Lyme disease, Lyme disease so they can be treated by a community that has no idea how to treat them. Who has, whose who's, who's mindset is So maybe if we show that these people die, this many people die in America from Lyme disease, maybe someone will listen. My, now, my question for you, Professor, is do you think Congress is fully versed on this? Um. Uh, fully versed, probably. I mean, uh, some of them are more versed than others, but I have to say, you know, I, you are probably familiar with the work of the Tick-Borne Disease Working Group. Yes. Um, the last report was just dropped. I don't know if you know that or not, but one of the sections, yes. subcommittees that was in this most recent um, group 
was the patient access to care. It was actually, you know, access to care, which a lot of these things were investigated and recommendations were made. And one thing about the Tick-Borne Disease Working Group, it is a report to Congress. So in other words, this is all going to go to Congress. Congress will respond by, you know, appropriate asking for appropriations for more funding or perhaps, you know, advocating with the CDC that maybe they need to, you know, broaden their um, definition to include uh, more chronic Lyme disease, whatever. But I, I believe that Congress is hearing this, especially with the work of uh, the Center for Lyme Action lobbying. Um, you know, we just had a big lobby day. I don't know if either of you participated in that, but I did, um, where we, you know, basically organized it all. And we, you know, 350 people participated. Actually, it was more than that. It was almost 400 people, which, you know, the first year was about 60. And then the next year it went up to, you know, just under 200. Um, the third year was COVIDness, So that, you know, was kind of weird. But then this past year, almost 400 people did it. So as more and more advocates come on board to do that kind of advocating, more and more legislators are hearing about um, these issues and they are responding by appropriating more money, right? So, I mean, that's the mission of the Center for Lyme Action is to increase funding for Lyme disease, which is good. Um, it, that, that part is important, but I also think we need to somehow get the CDC to move into, you know, to appreciate the research that has already been done and that that's clearly showing that this is more than just a simple disease that's characterized all the time by a bullseye rash. I mean, that stupid rule about the bullseye rash appearing 70 to 80% of the time is so wrong. I mean, I, I can't even tell you how wrong it is, but, you know, they're still in that space. They're making little changes. I don't know if you guys are paying attention to that, but I do all the time, right? So the, the changes in language in the CDC, if you go check out their website or if you talk to their representatives, it, it is changing, but um, it's, it's not changing super fast. And I think Congress can actually help with that too, right? So they can actually say, look at, you know, you need to pay more attention. You need to include um, chronic Lyme as part of that Oh, one thing about the patient access to care, I don't know if you've read that committee, subcommittee report. I was actually a member of that subcommittee. That report, and this is historic, and this is um, hopefully will be a very moving thing, but in the term post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, okay, so that word um, has ticked off a lot of people for very good reasons, because it's you know, it's Lyme disease, post-treatment Lyme disease, and then it's a syndrome. So basically what they're saying is we don't know what's causing it. We don't know what it's about. It's medically unexplained, but here's what it is. And that ticks patients off, as you might expect, right? I It ticked me off too. So in this report, we were able to convince both the federal folks and the people in the CDC to use, to change that from PTLDS, post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, to persistent Lyme disease slash chronic Lyme disease. So PLD, CLD. And that is earth shattering. I mean, honestly. To, Absolutely, that's huge. That's on the federal side, right? That was the, the last stronghold has just been dropped. So now it is a, we're saying that there are people that get Lyme disease that have persistent symptoms that become chronic. And it's not a syndrome. It's not medically unexplained. We may not know what it is, but it's real. It's validating. And to me, that was, you know, when you read that and I'm, you know, for going forward for the future, use those terms. I mean, I, I've advised everybody I know, don't, don't call it 
post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome or post-treatment Lyme disease or whatever you want to call it, because that actually only applies to people who are diagnosed early and treated early. And then 15% of them still end up with chronic illness. But, you know, like my daughter, like Tony, I mean, it was months before, you know, so there, it's not post-treatment. Yes, she was treated with antibiotic and didn't get better, but it's because she wasn't diagnosed at the time of her tick bite. You know, she wasn't treated at that point. Right. And that that's the thing that drives me crazy with that. You know, because the definition of post-treatment Lyme disease is you're diagnosed within the first week, treated with two weeks or three weeks of doxycycline, but yet you have symptoms for six months or more. And if you don't, if you aren't diagnosed within the first week, then you don't even belong in that category, you know? So, and that's what that language change actually does. So just so you know, I'm... Believe it or not, letters matter. Yes, <laughs> Words and, matter. And, and, and thank you for your great work, uh, you know, on that committee. And 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 it matters. It, I think it matters in a lot of different areas, but it matters. It matters where research dollars are going to be spent. It matters where insurance companies are going to be covering care. It matters where we're going to be we're going to be defining the type of treatment that doctors are going to be using. It yeah. matters in every way, shape, or form, which you know, sort of is a nice way of sort of winding down as we get to the end of the podcast. Um, you know, what we started with was how do you define Lyme disease, right? And because because language matters and definitions matter. And now that we're getting to a point where we're using language that's consistent with with patient experiences and we're using we're using terms that allow us to create a target, that is everything. That is huge. And it, it is going to be making changes, uh, real practical changes in the lives of people like Tony. So Tony, um, you know, as the special co-host, you get to ask the final question. So I'm going to let you do that now. What is the final question that you'd like to ask before we have a conversation about takeaways? What is giving you the greatest hope right now? Great question. Yes, sir. Momentum. Um, you know, honestly, within the past, you know, 22 into 23, I have to say that it, you know, one thing that really helped a lot also was the Limex challenge. I don't know if you were familiar with that. It's a, it was a prize. The first part of it was a prize challenge for a diagnostic prize. There were 46 entries in that. All right. So only 10 of them were awarded funding for that. I was also a judge for the, um, for the Limex challenge. That's why I know that there were 46, you know, entries for this. And that, you know, that that was phenomenal and they were good uh proposals you know so there were a lot of really good ideas out there there are definitely researchers who are interested because you know not all of them came from the same place not all of them were researchers at, at uh, universities or whatever a lot some of them were commercial already you know um, manufacturers and whatever they wanted to do it so moment i the, you know i i really as I mentioned, thought, feel that the rock, we're, we're just, we're almost there. We're almost ready for the rock to start rolling downhill with all of these things that are finally coming together. Everybody's hard work and concern and advocacy and, you know, even individual patients who are reaching out to other people, you know, with the, the network is growing, um, the network of Lyme disease patients and patient advocates. And, you know, I think that what will follow from that is changes in the standard of care, um, you know, especially after there's an accurate diagnostic test, there'll be changes in the standard of care, may be a little bit slower coming, but nonetheless, um, you know, I think we, there's progress being made and we actually have a wind behind our sails pushing us at this point, instead of just floating around there in the middle of the ocean, like what the heck. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I, I, I think I think from a takeaway standpoint, I, I'd like to get your reaction to a couple of things um, because I, I think you know we 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 had we had uh, some feisty debate here on this podcast, and there are a lot of things that we identified that have been problematic as we've been going on this journey together as uh, as advocates. But there really are a lot of really positive things that we've learned here uh, through this podcast today, and so one of the first things that uh, I think is really exciting is that so many of the gatekeepers. Uh, who, have who have been preventing um, important research from being available to mothers like you, Dr. Hearn, and other people who are looking to um, to get their hands on research, those guys are dying and they won't be the gatekeepers for much longer. So I think that's a really very exciting takeaway. Uh, another really exciting takeaway for me is, um, is that you pointed out that uh, many of these patient organizations um, are, are, are doing a great deal of work in raising money and funding, you know, really important research, which is now opening the door for other types of research. And one of the, one of the patient organizations, um, or one of the pa patient funding sources, of course, is the Cohen Foundation, which you were just referencing with the LimeX um, uh, project. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, fortunately, unfortunately, you know, when billionaires get Lyme disease and they decide they're going to dedicate some of their resources to, uh, to research, we have the kind of projects like LimeX. So, you know, the totality of all of that work that's being done on the fundraising side from patients like the Coens and like the uh, like the um, various other not-for-profits that you defined are beginning to get to the point where we're getting to a place of momentum, which is really exciting. Um, I do want to point out a couple of other things that we've talked about in the past, uh, and you've given me new insight into something uh, that we had never thought of before, which is, you know, we, we've always said that uh, that the the gains that have been made in the Lyme community have largely been driven by moms, right? Uh, unfortunately, not dads, uh, largely by moms, uh, and, and and moms have been doing really, really great work. And if you look at the you look at the sort of the genesis, a lot of the great not for profits and a lot of the advocate advocacy work has really been by moms and, and people who are parenting parenting Lyme, including by the way, LymeDisease.org, which is one of the few that you had available to you when your when your child first got sick, right? And LDA also. Yeah. So, so we, we see moms doing great work. So we 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 really have a lot of hope when we interview, uh, you know, moms and 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 we see how they're parenting their children. In many cases, uh, their children have become leaders in this community, and they have become the you know the doctors who are doing some of the great work. I think of like uh, you know Dr. Casey Kelly, for example, is one of the brilliant young leaders in this community um, who who went on her own journey, you know, with Lyme disease and is doing some of the you know the great work, despite being very young. She's a very young woman, right? But what, what we hadn't seen before you is how you're using your influence, not only with your own child, but many other people's children who are coming to study under you. And you're now you're now encouraging them and, and giving them, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, some career direction, some mentoring that's bringing them into the Lyme community as well. So it's not just moms who are parenting children with Lyme, but now we have a mom who's parenting other people's children or, or, or mentoring other people's children as a professor. And that's really awesome as well. And I think these young people are the ones that are really going to get us, get that boulder running downhill. So as, as great as it's been for, you know, so many of the moms who have done fantastic work and so much of the research that is being done as a result of, of, of patient advocacy work, it's really these young people who are now aging into, you know, their professional lives and they're really going to, they're going to make that change. And I think that's why, uh, we, you know, we should all have a lot of hope. So I want to thank- And they'll have more opportunities to do that with more funding 
for it sure. draws more people into the field. And, um, you know, I honestly feel like one of the reasons why, it, you know, HIV and Lyme happened at about the same time. Yeah. And everything went to HIV, right? And, you know, so Lyme sort of got shoved off into the background. And, but I, I just, I really feel that at this stage, we have made it to the point where there's enough people, you know, in the interest And in what I'm trying to say is, all the funding went to HIV, but now we're we're getting there. We're nowhere as near where, where we should be, but we are getting there. And that's going to draw young blood into the research arena and into the medical community, which is really what we need more than anything are doctors that actually are versed on not just the IDSA version of what Lyme disease is, but actually understand that it's a more complicated illness. Yeah, and, and these diseases did, did cer certainly crop up at the same time, but you know the reason the HIV world was was more successful, quite frankly, is because they were just better at advocating and building a model to to you know to bring resources to uh, you know to deal with a public health crisis. And you know the, the good thing about having that those folks is we have a model and we can follow them because they do they they taught you know they can teach us how to do it successfully. So there are so many really wonderful things that are happening and so many great things on the horizon. And I'm hoping folks are leaving this uh, podcast not only feeling blessed by listening to you two brilliant people um, you know describe so much of what your experiences were both together and as individuals, but also because there really is a lot of great things happening and uh, and we have a lot to be hopeful for. So again, I can't thank uh, the two of you enough for taking so much time out of your really busy lives and sharing these great stories with us. And uh, I know folks are really going to be excited to uh, uh, follow the two of you and follow the work that you're doing um, you know, moving forward in these communities. Thank you, Rich. Appreciate that. Professor, thank you, Rich. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Professor Holly Ahern. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Professor Ahern, please visit the State University of New York Adirondack website. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick by Blueprint. It has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past guests on this podcast. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com forward slash bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library for almost 350 episodes, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.